Someone came. <laughs> I would like to call to order the city council meeting of May 6, 2022. Councilmember Nixon? Here. Councilmember Black? Here. Councilmember Curtis? Here. Councilmember Falcone? Here. Councilmember Pascal? Here. Deputy Mayor Arnold. Here. Mayor Sweet. Here. Thank you. Okay, second to none. Second. Thank you. Mayor, is your mic on? Sorry. City Manager. Okay, thank you, Madam Mayor. So tonight we have a star sudden lineup for you. Uh, the purpose of tonight's uh, study session is to really share with you all the new information that we've had since we last talked about the park ballot measure. So you're gonna get updates on offices designs, uh, resident surveys, the uh, statistically valid survey, the last PFEC recommendation. And our goal is to basically provide you all this information and get your thoughts and feedback. But the uh, place where we'll start talking about trade-offs and decision-making will be at the June meeting. So I just wanted to make sure that uh, people understand there's a whole new study session at the first meeting in June to continue to explore these items. So. Uh, with that as an overview, I'm going to turn it over to our Parks and Community Services Director, Lynn Swangstra. Good evening, Madam Mayor, Deputy Mayor, and City Council. Uh, we're pleased to be with you here this evening. I'll introduce to you all the folks that you see sitting here. Uh, we have Mary Gardaki, our Parks Planning and Development Manager. She's been the lead for the uh, feasibility study. We have John Lloyd, our Deputy Director, Jason Filan, our Parks Manager, Sarah Schellenberger, our recreation manager, and our communications manager, David Wolbrecht. <laughs> and I like to claim him. <laughs> and uh, virtually, we have Ian Stewart with EMC. He'll be presenting some information for you. Uh, we do have a full agenda tonight. Um, there are 64 slides, and I'm not going to pretend that they're all really short, <laughs> but there are four primary subjects. Uh, community feedback and survey results, then funding mechanism options, expanded facility options, and ballot measure options. We're gonna stop at three um, key discussion points, that being the funding mechanism, facility preference, and elements to include in the ballot measure. First, we're gonna start with a little bit of feedback, community feedback, and uh, starting with the Park Board feedback. As you'll recall, Council and Park Board had a joint meeting on April 4th, during which you discussed the potential ballot measure elements. Park Board shared their general um, support of the PFAC recommendation uh, for the five elements and the at least one recreation and aquatic center. Um, they had a little bit of a differing opinion. They, would, they had asked for consideration of three additional elements that being enhanced safety and security, synthetic turf multi-purpose sports fields, and a permanent off-leash dog park. At Council's request, uh, these items were added to the community survey so that we could gather further input on that. Park Board did also discuss um, some concern about three elements that you see listed, uh, and then they did also express a preference for the Houghton Park and Ride location. And on that note, I'm going to hand it over to David, uh, who's going to talk to you about survey results. Thank you, Lynn, and good evening, Madam Mayor, Council. Um, so just briefly, I wanted to talk through a timeline of how we got here. 
related to the community survey. So staff worked with EMC to draft the survey instrument um, in March and came to council for some discussion on the draft instrument early April. The questions were finalized and were in the field. Uh, EMC was April 20th through 24th. Shortly thereafter, the city launched our open link survey, which closed yesterday. Um, I will note PFECT reviewed the data to date um, at their uh, May 1st meeting, and we are here tonight to present the results. Um, and before I turn it over to Ian from EMC Research, um, I did just wanna make a quick highlight for uh, kind of the survey demographics as it related to geography and specifically neighborhood. Um, so this was a, one of the questions that was asked in the survey. Um, and what I have here on the screen for you to look at is our uh, estimates for 2021 population by neighborhood, excuse me. Um, and then the results from EMC Research's survey and then the results from our open link survey. And so uh, just to highlight that overall responses for both surveys um, were fairly representative of uh, the percentage of population by neighborhood for Kirkland. Um, with some deviations, uh, we have up to 4% deviation for the EMC survey, um, undersampling Finn Hill, Evergreen Hill, and North Rose Hill, um, and a slight oversample of Central Houghton, Everest, and Moss Bay neighborhoods. Um, the open link survey that the city put out um, saw variants up to 9%, um, including undersampling of Evergreen Hill, Juanita, and North Rose Hill, um, and an oversampling of Market, Norkirk, and South Rose Hill Bridal Trails. So I just wanted to lay that uh, foundation for you as uh, kind of an understanding of who responded to the survey. Um, and, and, and we can come back to this as needed. So, um, and with- and I, If I could just add, so this was actually one of the questions that PFEC had was, was the community survey, the statistically valid survey, sort of skewed to the north by the demographics. And so we wanted to make sure that we showed the council how this laid out by, uh, by neighborhood. So that was one of the questions they had. And I think this is helpful in providing insight on that. Great, thank you, Kurt. Um, so next to walk you through the results, I'm gonna turn it over um, to Ian Stewart from EMC Research here joining us on Zoom. Um, and I'm gonna be guiding the presentation, but Ian will be talking us through it. Ian. Oh, Ian, I don't think we can hear you. You're muted. Oh, you don't appear muted. Hmm. Yeah, your mic looks on. I don't know, Cassie's or anything. Anything? No? Hmm. Okay. Darcy can hear him. Is there something related to this computer that I might need to change? So if other people logged into the Zoom meeting can hear him, but we can't hear him here. It's the um, it's called the integration PC. It's it's down in a rack. I'm, we're we're actually looking at it right here. Ian, can you hear us? Thank you, Madam Mayor. So, uh, just while we're waiting to work through a technical issue, I was, uh, City Manager, I was going to ask you on the slide we just saw with the community survey demographics. Uh, you mentioned that PFAC was wondering whether the survey skewed toward the north. To the extent, uh, so I understood David's presentation, of course, but at the same time, I was trying to quickly figure out where geographically it skewed toward, if it skewed at all toward a certain quadrant of the city. Do you have I, a sense of that? Yeah, I think our, 
assessment was it didn't, that it was basically a pretty good representation, and that I think more people live in the northern neighborhoods than we think they do. They're obviously by far the largest neighborhoods when you look on the map, so I think that was really, uh, when people just saw the rough results, it was like, well, everyone's voting in the north, but when we actually did the, you know, a sort of estimate by population by neighborhood, it came out to be, yeah, that's, it's about right. Perfect, thank you. Okay, that's a different computer. Okay. <clears throat> so I may have to come back to this present, just part of the presentation. Can we hear other panelists? That way we could identify whether it's him. Oh, we can't hear Darcy either. Lynn, is is the presentation scheduled in a way that we can move on to a different topic? Sounds good. Could have him try one more time. <laughs> one more time. <laughs> Uh, no, that's only for our room. Well, I um, I did a Zoom test. I'm gonna go check the. Um, I can. You want me to check the breakout session? Yeah, and oh well, yeah, well, I was actually gonna go into the um, where the computer. <laughs> <laughs> Both of them. Because <laughs> we did it here for <laughs> and just kind of did an idea. And then it just didn't matter. Be like, didn't matter. Right <laughs> yeah, the computer's right here, but but this is the. We're just we're remoting into the integration PC. Yeah. So that's, that's the one that we're you guys having periods of downstairs in the in the. No, because I don't have one. Just, we're remoted into that machine. Okay. We're not so actually working. Would Mike Connor know where? I know where it is too. Okay. Yeah. So should I head down there? I mean. Yeah, we'll, we'll just go ahead and move on. <laughs> yep. I'm the wild one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. Let me get out of your way. I'm going to go down to that. Okay. All right, we're going to we're going to come back to that part of the presentation. Ian, sorry about that. Yeah. I'll take it. But we shall we shall bring you back when we figure it out. Yes. Stay tuned. All right. Let me just make sure sharing again. Okay, and we're back. That's Nope, we're way far ahead. Okay. Sneak preview. And okay, so um, so really what I'm, I had planned was to build off of Ian's. And so um, <laughs> bear with me. Uh, really what I'm, I'm going to be highlighting for you all is the comparison between the statistically valid versus what we heard from the open link. And so uh, really quickly, we did hear a total uh, from 1,315 uh, community members 
uh, 1,016 of which identified as Kirkland residents. And so we filtered down the results for tonight's presentation to just that subsample, but we can provide the, the whole data set um, after tonight. And so uh, to start us off, the open-ended question that led off the, the survey, what is the most important issue? Um, really, this tracked pretty similar to, to EMC's results. And so the bullet points there that I have, the 19% mentioning growth or overdevelopment, 15% for affordable housing, 11% for crime, safety, or drugs. Um, EMC's results are just right below there. So a pretty comparable um, tracking. Uh, maybe crime was a little bit under for the, the open link survey. Um, next, if you recall, there, there was a series of kind of general priorities that the city could be investing in um, and just wanted to get a general sense of priority from a scale of one to seven, seven being the highest. Um, and so this is what we heard back from the um, open link and the circles there with the numbers, that's where it tracked for EMC's uh, survey. And so fairly comparable, um, you know, traffic leading the charge. Um, I would note housing affordability a little bit higher for, for ours, um, for the open link, I, I, I should say. Um, and indoor pool was a little bit uh, higher for, for ours as well. And I think I should correct uh, improving housing affordability is a little bit higher for EMCs. I think I misspoke there. Um, but overall, wasn't seeing a major deviation. Um, we, we did ask, um, oh, sorry, this is out of order. Proposal importance, and so um, what you see before you are a series of three questions that are answered throughout the survey. Um, we first ask, just right out of the gate, how important is this to you? Then we would talk about some elements and then ask again after letting folks know about the cost and then about the elements. And so you can see how there's a little bit of a tracking and, and change a little bit in the somewhat important category uh, primarily, although the very important also changed a little bit. Um, and here are the uh, vertically positioned over the numbers here is EMC's results. And so I would just call attention to the fact that the very important mounts are pretty different between the open link survey and EMC's. And really what that is, that's the level of intensity that, that people are feeling about this. And so um, Ian was gonna have a whole big section talking about this, so hopefully we'll get back to that. Um, but I, I just wanted to call it, that was one of the bigger deviations that we saw um, between the open link survey at 40%, kind of to start us off, um, versus the 24% that EMC research has had. Um, apologies. Uh, so we did ask the reasons for folks rating it as important or not important. Um, and so the numbers in the table are the open link survey. The bolded numbers to the right of the tables are EMC's results. And so some, some more deviation than we saw in some other questions, but also nothing um, drastically different. I mean, I think the cost and, and, and too many taxes, that was a stronger presence of why this is not important um, as relayed in our open link survey. Um, and some of the need or the um, quality of life, those are some of the differences for why people um, did think it was important um, in the open link versus the statistically valid survey. Uh, Councilmember Black, I'm seeing. Yes. Thanks, Madam Mayor. Um, so real quick, David, um, looking at this, these two uh, charts, um, I just want to make sure I'm, re I'm looking at them correctly. Um, and I'm terrible with colors, so I don't know what the color it is on the left, and I don't know no what problem. the color it is on the right. Left and right works. <laughs> um, reason, the reasons why the proposal is important 
on the left, that still reflects the, the higher number of folks surveyed who believed it was of importance. Relative to the one on the left, even though we're looking at percentages, these aren't percentages of total uh, respondents. These are total of the, of the lower number of people who said it was not as important to them. Correct, yes. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then we walked through the various elements um, for the what potential elements could be in the ballot measure. And uh, the results from the open link are, are here in the kind of ranking that they resulted in um, in our results. And the EMC's uh, kind of weighted average, that's the number with the bars um, on a scale of one to seven, one being you know, not important at all and seven being very important. Um, the weighted average of those you can see as follows. Um, I would note the year-round restrooms um, for both the statistically valid and the open link survey uh, were the highest um, and they were actually the same um, for weighted average for, for both versions of the instrument. Um, and some variation um, otherwise for, for these. Um, as you look kind of at a comparison between um, the o open link and EMC survey. I would note the, you know, some of the lower ones are still the lower ones on both and it's kind of more in the middle of, of Im importance where, where there's some deviation. Um, I also wanted to h highlight of the folks that um, thought that these elements were extremely important um, we've provided those percentages to you for, for comparison as well. So um, you can get a sense from, so under the extremely important column, the percentage on the left, that's yes. the open link survey. Can you hear me okay? Ooh, yes, Ian, and you're back. All right. Hang on just a second. Um, <laughs> and yeah, 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 I'm not touching anything. Um, and, and so what that indicates is there was a bit stronger of intensity for, for some of these elements. Um, you'll note the year-end restrooms and particularly the indoor lap pool and indoor recreation pool had saw far more intensity of importance for the open link than the um, statistically valid survey. Um, next, wanna just highlight briefly the location preference. And so of the respondents, um, it was uh, you know about a third uh, thought the uh, former Houghton Park and Ride site was preferable um, versus a little bit more than that for North Kirkland Community Center. And about 30% had no preference for the open link. And in the bubbles here are the numbers for the EMC statistically valid survey, um, which had a little bit more deviation, um, particularly with some more having no preference versus uh, the Houghton Park and Ride site. Um, and then lastly for my bit, and then we'll jump back over to Ian, um, of the two facility importance, whether uh, respondents thought having two sites was more important or you know, having one or two sites were, were more important. Um, the results for the open link survey are below and then the bolded numbers above are from EMC survey. And so you'll note that the, there was a bit stronger of an intensity for the two, two facility proposal, excuse me. Um, from the open link survey than the statistically valid survey. Um, and actually a stronger preference for one facility at either location that came through from the statistically valid survey. And that is all from my piece. So we're gonna go back in time and I'm gonna now introduce you to Ian's, Ian's oh, sorry, unless there's any final questions about the open link survey.
And Ian will be able to provide much better context for all this. So just rewind real quick. And uh, without further ado, Ian Stewart from EMC Research. Hello, sorry about the uh, technical challenges, but I'm back. Um, I'm actually glad we got to go in the reverse order because um, the, um, the intensity there, I think is an important thing to mention. Why don't we continue? And I will, uh, I will, I will uh, speak to some of the things that you haven't seen yet. You've already seen the dates we did this. We did a total of 400 interviews. And the main thing to keep in mind here is that we're looking for all residents in the cities. We're gonna talk a little bit about this question of a ballot measure. Just remember that voters are included in here, but this is actually talking to all citizens in Kirkland. Um, in terms of top of mind issues, we talked about this a few minutes ago. We're also showing you the 2020 differences. There's some differences there in traffic congestion and growth and development, but uh, there's a lot of consistency in some of the other measurements of what's important. The thing you'll notice in here that's not important is recreational opportunities. That doesn't crack the list of what's important uh, to, to people in Kirkland. Let's move on to the next one. So uh, we did a series of issue priorities on a scale of one to seven. The seven, six, and five are the higher priorities, and the seven means that it's, that's a very high priority. The reason I've highlighted the ones in red is because those, while, while important to almost half, clearly are not the same level of importance as the top three, right? You can get a sense now, especially when you look at the seven rating, the 38% for improving housing, housing affordability and reducing traffic congestion at 27%, those are dwarfing the importance of the, of the two at the bottom, right? So the way to think about this is the rec center stuff is not unimportant to people. It's just less important than the other stuff on their agenda. Let's keep going. So we, we first test that on the left. We did an entire description of what the, the proposal might look like, and we, you can read it for yourself on the left. Uh, we've also got the full version of the presentation. We asked after that, how important is that to you? This intensity of, of importance is the thing I want to draw your attention to. So we get a 61% total importance, but a quarter of, of the total is there at very important, right? So people like it. It's just there's just not a lot of intensity behind it. And that's important when you think about moving forward and considering Where's the level of support for this idea? At 61%, eh, it feels pretty good, but it doesn't feel quite as good when we say that the, the very important, the people who are really behind it are about a quarter uh, of, of the total. Let's keep going. I want to give you a, a sense of the subgroups because these come back later. I want to draw your attention to the difference in, in, uh, in the importance percentages, particularly among those 65 plus and 50 to 64 years. That's the, the, you know, the fourth and fifth columns down. And then those with children in the household and those without. You can see there's really big differences and who thinks these proposals are important? Look at the children and household versus with no children and household of how very a very important rating, right? And you're starting to get a sense of why you might see a bit of differences in the public version of the survey. Let's keep going. It's frozen on my side. I don't know if that's just me. Okay, nope, there we go. Um, we looked at this a minute ago. And so the reason why we asked these open-ended questions is to understand what people who think the proposal is important or not important are connecting to it. On the important side, you're seeing a, a group of, of different answers that are people saying there's activities there, a, a lot of general positives. On the negative side, what you'll see is that all three of the negatives are more intense than anything on the positive side. So costs and too many taxes, we have more important priorities. And importantly, the third one that's essentially equal with the other three is that there's already ways to recreate. We already have those kinds of things available, but just it's not necessary. So when I think about sort of the black cloud in, in this, in this uh, discussion, these are the three that draw my attention the most. The people saying it costs too much, we can, we can do this from other ways, right? So you think about moving forward, if it's not the highest, if it's not the most important priority and people are like, well, there's also other opportunities here, it starts to complicate the issue of how much support is there really in the community for this if we, if we had to press the question. Let's keep going. The other thing I want to draw your attention to on this question of importance. So on this scale of a mean one to seven, we tested essentially individual elements of the proposal components 
and we scrambled them up. So nobody hears these in the same order. Similar scale, one to seven, one means it's not important at all. Seven is extremely important. So on the scale, four is the midpoint. And what you'll notice is there's only four or five of these items that actually either reach or exceed the midpoint. Everything else is below the midpoint, right? So kind of my, my continued theme here of there's more important priorities. It's not as if these are unimportant. They just don't meet, meet, the, meet the same level of importance as some of the other items, items we talked about. The most important item in the scale is 22% extremely important, less than a quarter of everyone saying it's extremely important, uh, and that's the year on restrooms. So continuing this theme of, yep, it's, it, these are nice. I like these things, but I'm not, I don't really like them. I don't love them. Let's continue. So I think this is one of the most important slides in the presentation. Uh, we asked the initial importance I showed you a minute ago. Then we asked after we told them about the cost. We, we actually summed it up per household. And then we showed them all the uh, – we talked about all the components. We said how important is it now. So the one I'll draw you, I want to draw your attention to is the after-cost information one, where the very important is that they're at 24%. But there's some sub subgroups that I talked about a few minutes ago that change. So those 50-plus get to 54% total importance. Homeowners at 53%, and those without children in the household at 53%. So these are challenges when we get importance among some really uh, significant subgroups. You can imagine, right, in a, in a voting situation in a low turnout election that age 50 plus, homeowners and those without children make up a significant proportion of an electorate. So the fact that they get to around 50% after the other cost info, there's another sort of dark cloud there and sort of our consideration of what are we thinking about here. Um, but we do return to 62% total importance. So there's some, there's some elasticity here, right, of – uh, people thinking it's important and thinking it's not important, uh, kind of bouncing around here, but also draws some you know, big question marks to us about what do we do with information? How do we move forward? Let's keep going. So you've seen some of this already, but just to highlight, uh, when we asked about location preference, uh, the North Kirkland Community Center came out on top. But again, this is a plurality, not a majority, right? You could actually build a majority for either of these by taking the no preference and adding them together. But clearly, the North Kirkland Community Center park, uh, park location has a, a bit of an advantage uh, in terms of location preference. Next slide. And then in terms of one or two facilities, clearly when we asked it this way, we said we're considering two versus one. Would you what would you think about the two facility option? The importance now is at 44%. So we're now below a majority. The not important is a, is a majority of 56%. So we've inverted uh, the importance question here. And then one more, and I'll get to my conclusions, I believe. Uh, we then said you prefer one or two facilities, and one comes out on top here, a majority of 53%. So no ambiguity here about this one, 36% saying two facilities. Uh, I think if you did by geography, you'd see some interesting breakdowns of that, but that's not what we're, but what we're talking about at the moment. <laughs> Let's continue. So I want to summarize this in a couple of ways. One, um, the, the aquatics and community rec and parks uh, programs, are they're not among the top priorities. It's not to say they're not important. Uh, a majority do believe that uh, they're generally important, but there's little intensity around that, right? So the somewhat important is actually where we see most of the answers at 38%. Um, increasing the availability of activities for uh, youth and family and expanded access to parks are the leading reasons why people think this proposal is important. But the reasons why the proposal isn't are actually more concentrated. They're less by cost concerns, people saying that we have more important priorities and that there's enough recreation opportunities already. I mentioned to you after the cost information, we actually lose uh, importance of the proposal by eight points. And that, clearly, that movement is clearly outside of our margin of error. Uh, and the group that thinks this proposal, proposal isn't important reaches 41% at this point. Now, that's obviously, we, we, I showed you some subgroups where it's 53% important. So that's, that's a, a key highlight for you to take away. We talk about the highest priority components. We did talk about year-round restrooms, more park rangers, green space expansions, and youth programs. But there's little intensity around pretty much all of these items. There's only a few that make it above a, a, a midpoint on that rating. The North Kirkland location is preferred, uh, although an equal percentage have no location preference. And then finally, 
a majority do prefer the single facility. I realize I've sort of sped through that. Uh, we're sort of preserving time for questions, and there's actually a lot more we could talk about in here, again, in the nuances around this, but I feel like that gives you a good indication of the, of, of the big key takeaways from the survey we conducted, but I'm, I'm happy to answer questions either uh, now about this survey or the combination of the two as it relates to the, this, the open citizen survey, where I think, as a preview, you sort of saw some more intense feelings around how important this was, right? And if we were going just that alone, you might think, oh, great, a lot of people are on board, but that's why we do the survey in the first place, to get a statistically uh, protectable version. So I'll stop there and see if there's other questions I can answer. Uh, Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, thank you, Ian, and thank you, David. Um, great presentation. Um, I have a couple of just uh, a couple of questions. Um, the first is it seems to be since the neighborhood um, responses seem to be pretty much reflecting the population, do we know, given the importance of and the difference between households with children and without children, do we know how representative the proportion of respondents who have children in their household compared to no children is within the sample? I'm wondering if there's a non-response bias here because yeah, if you, you know, if families you with young kids you might not back. pick up the phone. Yeah, if you if you circle back to that slide, it actually it actually is on there the percentage of each okay. of the two groups. So um, there it is. So children in a household thirty one percent, no children in a household sixty nine percent. That was what we got. Do we now, know how is, that reflects the population? Is my question because we know yeah, so, that the neighborhoods do of it. Yeah. So mo uh, um, I don't think I have that one specifically on hand. I'll look. I'll try to look it up while we're talking here. But as best we can, we are trying to reflect the known census information. In the city, but that's not necessarily one that we would that we would track or wait on. But I will I will try to see if I can find that while we're talking. Here. Yeah, and I just wonder if we find that it doesn't reflect it, if there is a discrepancy, if we can wait on that for specifically for the um, the question on intensity of support, intense, you know, the 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 weight of how important this, you know, significantly important, or whatever that extreme cat was very important. I think that'd be really helpful to know um, in this, actually, <laughs> given that those are that's one of the most important measures and seems to be one of, if not the most important demographic. Yep, um, I, I will add to that as I'm looking for it, the, the, the key here is we, we did our best to try to do every sure. uh, demographic in comparison to the census. So that one, that one it's possible it's off, it's unlikely, but I will, I will look as we're talking here. Great, thank you. Um, and then my other question, I don't know if we have this um, readily available, is do we know with the intensity of importance or intensity of support, how that number, either the 24% and or the 61%, compared to say like similar question in the fire ballot measure or other ballot measures that we've um, either passed or failed in the past. I'm just curious yeah. how, how that compares. Yeah, there's sort of, uh, you know, I, I was, uh, we were talking about this and, and preparing for this presentation. There's two things that I would say about that. The first is, um, again, we're asking citizens, not voters, right? So there's a, there's a, a gap there between the universes we're talking about and who would actually show up in any given election. That's the first thing. Um, the second thing is we, because we're asking importance, it's not a direct ask of support, oppose, or yes, no. Um, and so the other thing I would say to you is that these issues all vary in terms of, of uh, how people consider them. So the parallel here is actually the city of Redmond that I would use. So the Redmond just put a, um, a public safety measure on the ballot last year. Now, there's one caveat. They actually added language after we tested it that had a, a, a price uh, increase of 5% per year. That measure ended up failing narrowly by a few hundred votes. We had it into this in the 60s in terms of support. We actually asked the question as support opposed instead of importance, right? So there's a lot of caveats here in terms of what do we look at. In terms of historical numbers, I would have to look at I, I would have to look at that. But um, the, the the bigger influence here is going to be how important do people perceive this? And I think from that first perspective, people like the concept, but 
if it's competing with other things that are important on the ballot or in the city, inflation, traffic, other things like that, that people don't feel are addressed, then I think the measure opens itself up to challenges. But uh, as we're as we're continuing to field questions here, we'll see if I can look up the uh, the previous surveys and see if we can draw a parallel there. Great, thank you. Oh, John or Councilmember Pascal. John's fine. I know. I'm I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, before we ask your question, um, the 2022 American Community Survey population estimates had 20 percent uh, of, of the Kirkland population under 18. So, if anything, I think we're overestimating uh, children in the household. What is the demographic? I'm sorry. This is the the initial importance um, among those. Do we have the demographic slide of just? Oh, and that would be the number of children, not the number of households. So that could vary. Anyway, it could be. Yeah, we can follow up with that. Thank yeah. you. Go ahead, Councilman. No, uh, Ian, thanks very much for going through these slides uh, quickly. Very informative. I uh, really appreciate you kind of really pointing out kind of the key items. Two questions for you. When it came to the location of the aquatic facility, there was a, a majority that, that favored the North Kirkland uh, location. When they were asked that question, they didn't, they weren't a distinguishing between the amenities that would be offered at either location. They were, it was just purely a location based and the type of facility was essentially the same in that type of question, right? So, so for example, the Houghton facility, hey, the, it would offer these additional uh, amenities. The North Kirkland wouldn't stack up. Um, which do you prefer? That The question wasn't, wasn't asked in that way. Yeah, you are in fact looking at the question text of what we asked. So yeah. this question comes towards the end of the survey. So I think what you're saying is there's no way for someone to say, well, North Kirkland's gonna have these items and Houghton's gonna have these items. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, and you're right. They they wouldn't they wouldn't be able to tell that. It was more about a location preference. Right. It was just lo purely location. Okay. Yes. So I think that that's helpful to keep in mind. Um, the the second one was I want to follow up on a point that you made that I I don't know that I was completely tracking. I think I was, but you were inferring that uh, the intensity of support for uh, certain amenities or some of the items um, was was very imp uh, well when you broke it down to kind of the the subcategories of of those who are likely to vote you you were I guess you were kind of drawing a conclusion that if you were just to look at those who generally vote in off your elections um, the those that that supported it uh, as very important um, were, were even less. I, you didn't have a slide on it, and I don't think you have the data on it here showing, um, but you were kind of making a conclusion, and I, I wanted to understand that a little bit more. I was wondering if you could kind of explain that more. Sure, so this is the first place we talk about importance, and this was when we initially asked the question. And the, the, what I tried to draw your attention to here was some of the demographic differences they don't really stand out nearly as much in age. If you look at the age stacks, right, um, 50 to 64 and 65 plus, don't look all that different. There's a little bit of difference in the somewhat important. So if you if you forward to the slide that has all three of the asks in there, the initial, the cost, and after the components, 
What I'm noting here is that after the cost information, there are three groups that where imp total importance is more like a bare majority, right? And that's the ages 50 plus, homeowners, and those without children in the household. And those three, as you just noted, are the kinds of groups you would see in even in an even bigger proportion. And I just want to pause there for a minute. You, it, we, we do this kind of presentation all the time. Got to think about the, the concentric circles of people, right? There's everybody who lives in the city. And then we draw another circle, which would be the first voter group, which is every voter who's ever registered to vote, whether they've voted to show up or not. The next one would be a presidential election, right? So now we're about 85% of all voters. And you start to get smaller and smaller. And as you do, you get older and older, right? So we're making some leaps here because of what we can learn and what, what, and what we know about these audiences. So what I'm trying to note for you here is that whenever with just cost information on a, a proposal we asked about importance gets total importance to around 50%, the majority, right? You can sort of connect some dots here and say, all right, well, if, if that's all it takes, then what happens if I have a citizen group that's actually think this is a bad idea and, and we need to be focusing on something else instead? I'm not saying that's actually going to happen, but you know, that's where I go in the, in the what if question, <laughs> right? Uh, if you have a, an active group or someone saying this is a bad idea, what does that do to your 53 or 54% who, who with just cost information said, I'm not, you know, I'm, this is less important to me now. That's kind of what that's that's the conclusion I'm trying to draw for you. And it's it's not one that I can fully put you into because we're asked about importance and we haven't asked voters. So I'm making I'm making a couple leaps here uh, to the audiences, but it does suggest it does suggest some potential uh, challenges um, in, in, in various various smaller turnout ballots. Right. OK, I, that helps. I, I didn't see that the top portion of the slide where it said uh, in the green in the green box, age 50 plus, 54%, homeowners, 53%, and, and those without children in the yes, household, we, 53%. We, okay, I hadn't seen that. Um, I hadn't and, noticed that earlier, so that, that's really helpful. And we also move very quickly. So yeah, I yeah. Be, I forgive you for not catching that, yes. Okay. Thanks for uh, the explanation and digging deeper into the, the data. That's, of course. that's what we need. Um, in 2020, just as, as a note, follow-up to our other question, um, the, our initial question on the fire services bond, 22% very important, 42% important for a total of 64%. So uh, the, the initial fire bond question was a little higher uh, than, than this number here. But the intensity here is a little bit higher. Other questions? Uh, Councilmember Curtis. Um, thank you, Madam Mayor. And thank you, Ian and David. So I'm was had the same question as Councilmember Pascal, and I just want to take it. So I think when we come back to see that data of who votes would be helpful. Um, and you have said repeatedly that we have focused on residents, not on voters. Can you sort of extrapolate of the percentage of people we reached out what you think would be the number of voters? And why did we not ask that question? Um, I could tell you about the voting question just because that was actually when the city attorney and we talked to the Public Disclosure Commission, they, while it's not illegal, they don't like you testing just voters. And so we made the decision to test all residents, not just voters. So that was a decision that we made, not that EMC made. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I just wonder if there's a general percentage of this is the population and these many people are registered to vote. I, Ian, I understand if you can't. Answer that. Yeah, it, it, it's not that I can't answer it. It's that it, that it's challenging to do the kinds of one-to-one -one 
from those audiences. The best way to do it is in the demographic subgroups like I mentioned uh, here on the slide that's up right now, right? Mm -hmm. Looking at those are our best indication. But there's, there's, actually, there's actually a second challenge here, which when we're asking importance and not yes, no, or support, right? We're also getting further and further away from what the ballot actually looks like. So that, that poses a second challenge here. And I think uh, what I would leave you with is um, the question of how important the, the fire and EMS levy questions were in that environment without anything else, right, as part of the discussion. And will the parks and uh, aquatic center, will, will those feel as important um, as, as you asked that question on election day versus approving a fire and an EMS bond? Now, the difference is they won't have to choose between one or the other, right? They won't be on the same ballot together. But when I talk about importance, that's kind of what I mean, that the intensity is just not in the same way here um, as, as uh, but, you know, the fire and EMS, by comparison, that intensity is also pretty low. So um, the, the challenge becomes what, what does it look like in the future? The, the importance actually in the – when we talked about in the fire, it actually increased. So it got more important as we went on the survey, and ours uh, really didn't change here in the, in the parks levy. It went from 64% importance to start. In the end, the fire bond was at 70% uh, importance and 28% very important. So it continued to increase in importance overall and intensity, whereas this one didn't really do that. And in fact, we saw a drop. Uh, and the fire, the fire services bond never saw a drop. It always increased. Okay, thank you. So we need to probably keep going on mm -hmm. the rest of the topics. Any last questions? I see none. Welcome back, Lynn. Thank you, Ian. Hey. So we uh, talked to the youth council. Um, staff attended the April 24th Youth Council meeting and to seek spe specifically to seek their input um, about the potential ballot measure. Uh, staff presented about the PFEC process, the council process, and provided um, flashcards as well as the PFEC rankings um, to the Youth Council. And that was specifically for the top 13 elements, so it was narrowed down a little bit given the length of time that uh, we had to talk to the Youth Council. Um, after the presentation and the time for questions, youth council members were asked to use an online ranking system to rank the uh, importance of those 13 elements. Um, a total of 21 youth council members voted in some way, and those responses are summarized here on the screen. 57% uh, of members ranked in Aquatics and Recreation Center and KTUB with teen programs as being in their top three and 48% ranked additional year-round restrooms in their top three. So that pretty much wraps up the feedback version. And then we'll move on to kind of our discussion topics, the first one being funding mechanism. At the PFEC meeting on May 1st, George Dugdale presented a more detailed version of the table that's on the slide in front of you there. Uh, and he shared three potential options for ballot measure funding mechanisms uh, with a description of each, passage requirements, and details about how it could work to meet the operating and capital needs of the potential investments. After the presentation, PFEC members voted on their preferred options, and you can see that 52% of PFEC members uh, were in favor of the one-measure permanent levy lid lift, and then we go down to 31% of PFEC members favored the long-term temporary levy lid lift, and 17% favored the two-measure bond and levy combo. 
So on that note, we'll stop for some council feedback on funding mechanism. Councilmember Nixon. So a question first, um, probably for the city manager, is the intent to, if we did the levy lid lift, to do the swap like we did with general fund dollars, like to get the fire stations built all up front, that's do that here as well? Yeah, and one of the things, we thought we'd talk a little bit about this at the May retreat and then also at the June 6th meeting to talk about what that might look like. Um, but yeah, that's what we did with the fire prop one. So we'd be looking at a similar, a similar issue here. You'd swap out and then you'd bond against the general fund, but you'd use this money to pay for the park services and some of the enhanced services as well. Um, so my comment would be, uh, I've seen feedback online uh, from community members who don't see why we need a permanent levy. They want to see just a bond. Um, and so my observation would be, we need to do some educating about the long-term need to subsidize the operations. Um, I think that worked great in the last uh, road levy and, and park levy, right? That we front-loaded a bunch of uh, capital projects with the knowledge up front that after those were built, that the money could be used for subsidizing operations. Um, and I, I think that the community needs to understand um, that the Aquatic Center in particular will not be self-supporting, it will have to be subsidized, and that that's a reason why we need a permanent uh, levy. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, Councilmember Pascal. <coughs> So a question and then a statement uh, on the twenty-year temporary. Could you explain? I'm not I'm not clear on what that is. So that would be a levy that would be for twenty years, and then it could potentially expire, or could it be um, a levy of a certain size that then a portion of it would expire, but then the other portion would continue. I, yeah. What, what are the options? Yeah. We have <laughs> so, George Dugdale on the line specifically to answer that type of question. And I'll go uh, quickly. So the, you have to put the term of the levy in the ballot title. So you can go as far out as you want, essentially. So you could, if you decided to go 20 years or 30 years, you could use mechanisms to bond against that revenue stream, but it would expire at the end of that time. And so it would, it would take voter approval to renew it or extend it or increase it or decrease it. So... Okay, so so this is what's going on in my head, is that a, part, a good portion of the levy would be used to build capital improvements at the beginning, um, and a portion of it would be used for operations, is how I understand um, some of the, the options put before us today. Once those capital improvements are paid off, then there's going to be this excess amount at some later date. Um, 20 years or 30 years into the future. That's correct, if it's permanent. That, that amount could then be put back into operations or it could be put back into further capital investments uh, decisions at that time if it were permanent. That's right. Um, how could you do that under, I, I guess I'd be interested in how you would do that under a temporary um, option. So we can bring that back. Um, sure answer is you still need reauthorization eventually, but you can you can set it up slightly differently. So we can bring some of that back for June. Thank you. Any other comments on funding? 
Is there general support for the recommendation? I guess we don't need to know until next right. visit, but let's keep going. Okay. At this time, I'm going to hand it over to Mary Gardaki, who's going to talk to you about the additional uh, feasibility study options. Thank you, Lynn, Mayor, Council. A pleasure being here again this evening. I did want to talk a little bit about um, the facility feasibility study. Uh, In-house, we're calling this, this next step Phase 2, because as you may recall, the City Council and PFEC requested three additional options following the presentation in February. And what I'm going to do is first reorient everyone on the facility's locations and demographics, and then I will recap the two Houghton Park and Ride options, followed by the three new options you see listed there on the screen. And then Sarah Schellenbarger will work through um, some data regarding participation projections for the facilities, and then we'll end with a summary of the options. So for orientation, this is two maps depicting the facility locations and the, and the context for each facility. North Kirkland Community Center is in the north, and Houghton Park and Ride, as you can see, is further in the south. Specifically, these equity maps show median household income and a diversity income in index, both which were considerations at the time of site selection. It is important to note that the NKCC, uh, <clears throat> NKCC site is in a slightly lower income neighborhood and is proximate to one of the lowest income areas in Kirkland. The map on the right uh, demonstrates that both the NKCC and Houghton Park and Ride sites have the same diversity index. And what that means is the diversity index, um, using the software we have, measures the probability that the two, that two people from the same area will be from different race and eth ethnic groups. Therefore, as you can see, the darker the color, the, the higher that probability is. So as I mentioned, we're going to go through the first, the um, a recap of the two Houghton Park and Ride options. Um, option A is the 103 square foot uh, facility. This uh, houses a three court gym with a walk and jog track and exercise room, an eight lane lap pool and rec pool, and a diversity of um, community spaces, kitchen, multicultural space, maker spaces and party rooms. The capital cost for this facility is $132.5 million, with a cost recovery of 73%. Option B is smaller in, at 86,000 square feet and has reduced to a two-court gym, still having the walk and jog track and exercise rooms, but also then a reduced lap pool with six lanes. Again, diversity of community spaces um, with a capital cost of $108.5 million and a cost recovery of 74%. The additional options, so again, those were from the previous, the first part of the study. In this phase two, the additional options were requested. Um, one was a 80,000 80, square foot facility at NKCC. Actually, the request was for 86,000 square feet. However, due to site constraints and the request for um, the number of pools and the number of gyms in that facility, we could only fit an 80,000 square foot facility. 
The second option was uh, basically a combo of two smaller complementary facilities, one at Houghton Park and Ride and one at NK. And that would be accomplished through a reduction of community space and then balancing the elements of recreation and aquatic at each. So for Houghton Park and Ride, the aquatics is focused there and recreation is a focus at NK. Lastly is the 18,000 square foot uh, facility at NK. This is um, under the premise of basically a replacement um, to take in response to the end of its useful life that's happening there and how to address that. And we'll go through some of the options for that as well. So NK 80,000 80, square foot. This one has a two-court gym with a walk-jog track and exercise rooms, six-lane lap pool, diversity of community spaces, with a capital cost of $110 million and a cost recovery of 83%. And you can see there on the left, this is called a test bit diagram, uh, the size of that facility and how snug it looks on that site. The complementary option um, totals 112 square feet, but you can see is divided between Houghton Park and Ride at 67 and NK at 45. The Houghton Park and Ride here has two court gym um, with a limited exercise room. Again, we're focusing at this facility on aquatics. It does have an eight lane lap pool with a 7,000 square foot rec pool, um, limited community spaces as directed, and then the NK pro, um, option that complements this has a two-court gym with a walk-jog trap, uh, limited uh, some exercise rooms, but no aquatics. And um, basically, we're trying to keep some of those community spaces that currently exist at NK. The total cost for this um, complementary package is $155.5 million with a cost recovery of 81%. The high, and the, you'll see that that higher cost recovery is higher due to the ability to expand membership opportunities. And we're going to talk a little bit later about membership considerations later in the presentation. And lastly, the NKCC 18,000 square feet facility. Again, this is our replacement option. It has a one-quart gym, which we actually do not have right now, so we're expanding a little bit. Um, one exercise room and one classroom with a uh, capital cost of $42 million and a cost recovery of 22%. So that concludes my portion of the presentation. So now I'll turn it over to Sarah Schellenbarger to talk Just about See if we have questions first on the facilities. Oh, yes, sir. I'm just going to make a comment here. This is not lack of energy. This is because we really study our packets. Nice. So you're not telling us anything we haven't read. Okay. Were there any typos? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here's Sarah. Thanks, Mary. And um, good evening, Madam Mary Mayor and uh, Council. So um, as we start to talk about program participation, I want to start with a visual reminder. We've been grouping these facility spaces into these three categories, recreation, um, that includes gyms and community uh, group exercise spaces and fitness rooms, 
um, aquatics, including a lap pool and a recreation or leisure pool, and then community spaces that include multi-purpose classrooms, uh, meeting rooms, art rooms, music rooms, maker spaces, and large community rooms or cultural spaces. And these have been color-coded when we've looked at the concept plans uh, with square footage, and you'll see these same colors reflected when we break down the participation numbers on the next slides as well. So within our current uh, facility space, we have high wait lists for programs across all three of these program space categories, recreation, aquatics, and community spaces. And these represent the unmet needs in the community now, uh, just considering what we're currently able to offer with existing resources and uh, spaces. Within the recreation spaces, uh, you'll see the waitlist entries total 3,000 across the programs offered in gymnasiums, uh, group exercise rooms, and sport courts. And I want to note that not all of our programs at sport courts would work in an indoor gymnasium, but I wanted to include these numbers um, because sport courts are being considered as a ballot measure element separate from the facilities. You can also see the aquatics waitlist total over um, 10,000 and waitlists for programs that happen in community spaces total over 2,500. Across all of these programs and spaces, we have over 16,000 waitlist entries annually. And as you can see in the bar chart, most of this demand is for those aquatics programs, specifically swim lessons. Uh, youth programs are also high. This includes uh, youth camps primarily, but also dance and gymnastics classes. And then preschool programs focus on movement and art also have high wait lists. And I want to share these just to give a sense of the demand that the new program spaces would allow us to meet. On this slide, you will see the participation projections for each of the five facility options being considered across the top and then broken down by those three uh, program space categories, recreation, aquatics, and community spaces. These numbers are estimates for our program participants, and I want to define a program participant as someone who registers for a program or comes into the facility to participate in a specific structured program. Uh, for example, I've registered for winter quarter dance class, or my child is attending a science camp, or I show up to the facility for a support group every Thursday. Um, these numbers do not count any drop-in use, so no drop-in swim, no drop-in uh, fitness room use, or anyone accessing a new facility with a membership, or folks coming into the facility as part of a rental. Uh, these participation numbers are rooted in real program participant data within the context of our existing facility space. So we looked at how many people we serve now with our existing facilities and extrapolated out participant estimates for new facilities based on the type and number and approximate size of those rooms and spaces for each of the five facility options. I also want to note that this is a capacity analysis to understand how we could serve the community through these spaces, um, but these participation estimates are not tied to the facility's revenue projections or operating expenses. As an example, um, we have two small group exercise rooms in North Kirkland Community Center right now, and the three largest facility um, options each plan for one large and one medium group exercise room, so we'd be able to serve more people through those spaces. Um, another example is the current art room at North Kirkland Community Center is about 285 square feet. It's tiny, it really only works for preschoolers, you would not want to put adults in there, um, but the concept plans for the facilities have art rooms that are 500 square feet or 1,000 square feet, um, would give us uh, a lot more space to um, offer programs for more participants, more ages, and more types of programs. 
Looking at these numbers, there's a few things I want to point out. Um, in general, the larger the facility, the more people served. There are some slight variations depending on the size and number of those different um, spaces, the number of community spaces available, or the number of uh, gym courts, or the size of the pool. The complementary sites, the Houghton um, 67 and the NK45, though when combined they offer more square footage compared to the other larger sites, um, the number of uh, people served is less, and that's because those facilities overall included less facility, um, excuse, excuse me, less community space. And then you'll also notice that the NK18 site, um, the total participant estimate is really comparable to the current facility, and that's because though it's larger, it has fewer overall program spaces available. The pool numbers also vary from facility to facility due to the number of lap lanes, um, six lanes versus eight lanes, and the relative size of the recreation pool. So these next slides uh, will show some examples for programs for each program space, starting with that recreation category. Um, the multipurpose exercise rooms are really ideal for movement classes, and they can easily serve um, a variety of programs in all ages. We have, uh, this would include our little tumblers classes to cardio and core, to capoeira, to Zumba gold. Um, and in this space, we have uh, the highest wait list for youth ballet, youth tumbling, and parent-child classes that focus on gross motor skills. Uh, with our own gym space, we'd be able to expand our popular adult league, specifically volleyball and pickleball, um, and meet the high wait list for those programs, and we'd also be able to expand popular preschool and youth sports leagues like basketball. And gyms would also offer an indoor play space, hot commodity during the wet and cold months. Um, we anticipate that a fitness room would primarily be drop-in space, but there are opportunities to offer small group cardio and strength training classes um, and personal training. Now into aquatics. Uh, with an indoor recreation pool, we'd be able to offer some lessons year-round and would have capacity to serve all the families on our very long wait list. Uh, families could do swim lessons during the school year so that when warm weather comes, their kids are confident swimmers. A recreation pool is typically designed with different features and spaces, so it could be programmed in a variety of ways. We could have swim lessons in one area, water exercise in another, and water therapy in another, all happening at the same time. An indoor uh, year-round pool would also allow us to offer a more robust after-school care program that could include things like learn to swim, in addition to homework help and craft projects to support working parents and teach kids real-life skills. Uh, similarly, the lap pool would offer a variety of spaces um, to offer swim lessons as well as exercise classes, lap swimming, and practice space for swim teams. And again, these different programs could be happening at the same time in the lap pool. We could have four lanes for swim team practice and two for open lap swim and two for swim lessons. So this is another space that's highly programmable. Now into the community space category. These multi-purpose community rooms and event rooms are, are large rooms and they're divisible. So we could offer one large program or three small programs. And then the three largest facility options also have a stage attached to them, which functions as an additional classroom when it's not being used for performances. These are uh, very flexible spaces that can be used for a variety of programs for all ages, from events and performances to after-school youth programs and summer camps to smaller classroom-based programs like computer camps or ESL classes or kindergarten readiness classes. 
And then community spaces can also include rooms that are more focused for specific program areas, such as art classes or music lessons or other creative outlets. Um, they can also serve as spaces to foster social health, where support groups meet or where cultural celebrations or community conversations take place. In these spaces currently, we have the highest wait list for art programs for all ages, from messy art for twos, all the way up to our adult oil and watercolor painting classes. And the additional community spaces in the facility options would allow us to meet those demands. There are three factors that we felt were important when considering uh, facility program spaces, and they include programmatic capacity, the ability to absorb growth, and elements that are minimally available elsewhere. And these three components are strongly related to each other. We know from the PROS plan outreach and our programming data about demand and wait list that the highest priorities related to a recreation and aquatic center are fitness, health and wellness, aquatics programs, sport programs, after school, camps, and preschool programs. And while these types could be delivered in a variety of settings, there are three primary types of spaces that would facilitate meeting the greatest needs and filling our programmatic gaps. And those include the multi-purpose rooms, gyms, and lap and leisure pools. These three types of spaces are also minimally available elsewhere. Relating to growth as the school district gyms become less available and the population grows, we, the need for gym space will become more and more imperative. Additionally, we're underserving the area so significantly with aquatics facilities that maximizing lap lanes and recreation water is vital. Uh, this slide shows a side-by-side -side comparison of the types of spaces available in the four largest facility options developed in the feasibility study. And you can see the approximate uh, size of the different spaces, for instance, three courts versus two courts, eight lanes versus um, six lanes in the pool. Um, and you can see the breadth and diversity of community spaces for each of the options. The facility option that offers the most capacity and the most room for growth and the most needed spaces is the 103,000 square foot uh, facility at the Houghton Park and Ride location. Those program spaces to prioritize remain the same. Um, the recreation spaces like gyms and group exercise rooms, the lap and leisure pools, and the community spaces. Balancing diverse program spaces within these categories will help us meet those programmatic needs now and in the future as the community grows. That being said, we haven't designed a specific facility and these are concepts that inform the costing and the ballot measure does not need to specify the exact facility size. It can just focus on the cost and types of spaces. And with that, back over to Lynn to talk more about costs. Uh, Councilmember Cruz. Thank you, Sarah. Um, capacity. So currently, snapshot in time, 16,000 members on wait lists. So can we look at what, if we were not to grow our facilities at all, how that wait list would increase over time? I would love to see that. Thank you. Okay, uh, here's a, a brief summary for you on the screen. Um, these facility cost estimates um, have been shared with PFEC. Uh, throughout the process, we were using the um, cost for a $1 million average home, and part of the reason for that was the ease of calculation to other values of, of homes. However, uh, late in the process, uh, which was this year, we found that the new median home value of $1.2 million, so uh, we are providing actually both comparisons there for folks. The top chart there has um, the cost for just those facility options, and then the bottom piece of the chart adds the five components 
on top of the facility options. And just a real couple, um, small couple considerations, um, important pieces of information just, just to know underlying these numbers is the cost of the facilities were actually projected at $2025 because the chances of actually uh, building and opening a facility before 2025 are pretty much none. Um, however, to be consistent with all the other element costing, the FTEs were projected with 2023 salaries. <clears throat> Another thing to point out from the feasibility study report is that the facility revenue projections uh, were made using a typical membership model, and by that I mean typical from kind of across the country. That means that people would gain access to the facility uh, with daily admission or some sort of membership product. Um, that gives them full use of the facility as well as some base level of programs like fitness classes. People can also participate in a variety of free and fee-based programs without having a membership. So kind of like an a la carte model, they can sign up for just a specific program, no membership required. Um, and should council uh, want to explore a different type of um, facility operating model, uh, we might wanna have some discussion on that because it could impact uh, the annual operating cost. So we could bring that back on June 6th. Um, the additional recommendation by PFEC. Uh, uh, Councilman you know, Curtis has a question. Oh. Lynn, can you come back with um, a comparison of existing facility costs? So compare what we anticipate the membership cost to be, compare it to what it would cost to do private or... Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah so... Because it looks like a large number when you compare it to other types mm -hmm. of facilities. Yeah, we can bring that back for you. Thank you. Thank you. Deputy Mayor Arnold. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Lynn, as we're looking at membership models, do we have the option to charge different levels for Kirkland residents? Absolutely. Others? Okay. Absolutely. Uh, you know, as, as we move forward, it should be clear in any resolutions that we adopt that that's our policy and intention. Yeah. Yeah, we do have that in the financial policy now to have a 20% differential uh, that could be changed for a facility if we wanted to increase or decrease that. Councilmember Fal Falco. Thank you, Madam. I had both of those questions written down. I was <laughs> writing the one that Councilmember Curtis asked as she was asking it. So um, really glad that those were also asked. Um, are we also incorporating any sort of financial assistance and have we looked at both full and partial financial assistance for households as well? Um, I think there are probably likely families who are lower income who would benefit from a full financial assistance and some where it would be a, a pretty big stretch where they could uh, possibly pay for half or partial um, mm -hmm. and benefit from um, partial. The pricing that was used did include a senior discount. Um, we could also expand that. There could be a sliding scale uh, that's somewhat dependent on revenue or there can be some sort of assistance program or both. So all of those are absolutely options. Thank you. Yeah, it would be great to look at that in the, in the modeling as well. And then my other question was, um, in looking at the the the, uh, the cost per household at a one million or one point two million, uh, what would be the recommendation for what would be on the ballot measure? Or is that something that we would be discussing whether to put the the cost for a one point two million dollar home or a one million dollar home? Yeah. So what we'd actually do is put a 
cost per thousand, and then the AV is actually calculated the following year by the assessor. So we don't actually pick one. We basically just say this is the three cents okay. per thousand. And the people do um, that. And so that's why you might recall from the fire belt measure, there's a little bit of when AV goes up or down, it actually has an impact because you unfortunately can't adjust it afterwards. So, um, mm -hmm. so I wouldn't really pick one. We'd just say it's twenty three cents per thousand or nineteen cents per thousand. So thank you. And you can see those cents uh, up here. Most folks don't really think in terms of cents per thousand, so that's why we've been using the total cost. Uh, but you can see that comparison there. I would also note, and I think some of you have heard this as well, that the county assessor does say that there's a likelihood that the assessed valuation in the east side is going to go down sometime this year. Um, so just another factor that we have to, to think about, but it'll probably come back down from 1.2 as well. So. So just to wrap up the facility information, um, as you know, PFAC received the same facility presentation that you just received. They also saw the EMC statistically valid survey results, and they were asked to uh, weigh in on facility preferences. You can see at the bottom there that one facility was the preferred option, and then at the bottom there you can see the ranking of that one facility with Houghton Park and Ride being 86,000 and followed by the Houghton Park and Ride 103,000 square foot facility. And uh, PFAC was, um, to, did take into consideration the community feedback that was really indicating uh, one facility. Um, so on that note, we wanted to see if there's any specific um, discussion or direction or questions on facilities. Comments? Councilmember Falcone. I have a question just about what the PFAC discussion was like around the um, site preference, given the feedback from the community. Can you mm -hmm. speak a little bit to that? I don't know if that's for Councilmember Curtis or for staff, just kind of what that decision or discussion was like um, to recommend the one that was not, rec not preferred from the community. There were a lot of factors that were considered in all of the PFAC conversations, not just the May 1st conversation, but a lot of the conversation with location um, was discussed with the number of families in that area in the northern part of Kirkland. Um, also, equitability was discussed. Um, cost was discussed, but actually location was just as important of a factor as cost. Um, I'd also say, just from my perspective, that permitting a lot of it was passage. You know, a lot of discussion about does location help or hurt passage, right? And so I would say that there was a constant meshing of all those factors of like, um, would location help it or hurt it if it was at the North Kirkland Community Center? And then discussions from each PFEC member about sort of how they view it from their perspective. So it was really always a wide ranging discussion on location. Deputy Mayor Arnold. Uh, no questions, but just some feedback in general. Um, as we're looking at this, I really appreciate what we're hearing both through the community surveys and through the PFAC on um, looking at the 86,000 square foot facility. Uh, we previously had talked about wanting to go big and some of the advantages on that. What we're hearing pretty strongly from our community is um, to scale back the expectations and given economic uncertainty and other uh, uh, results from um, recent voter approved ballot measures, I, I would concur with that. So definitely support the, the one facility. 
the I would lean more towards the Houghton Park and Ride as the location, given some of the information we've had looked at about the um, advantages there and the advantage of future potential expansion. Um, and so that's something where I would probably lean in, in, in that direction. That said, I do think something needs to happen with, with North Kirkland. Um, and clearly the feedback is not for the rebuild now. But I'm wondering if we could put something in the ballot measure that would start that process, even if it was like money to get to a design standpoint, and then we could start to seek funding elsewhere, look at state grants and other other things to go rebuild North Kirkland, because just given the age of the facility, we're going to have to do something. Thank you. Thank you, Councilmember Falcone. Did I already go to you? Uh, you did. Are we doing general wrap-up questions? I have three other wrap-up questions. Do you have more to present? There's a little bit more on elements. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Then, all right, well, I just want to make one comment here. And you guys are doing an amazing presentation. And I've, I've looked at it so many times. I've looked at the diagram so many times. But one of the considerations that I hope we make as we evaluate the north facility versus the south facility is in the north, we have Juanita Beach. We have the swimming pool at Juanita. Um, we don't have any of those kind of facilities. I mean, we've got Houghton Beach and, and, and the waterfront parks. Uh, but I think that needs to be a part of the consideration as we as we move forward in terms of uh, location. So that's about all. Also, uh, Curtis. Thank, thank, <laughs> thank you, Councilmember Pascal and Madam Mayor. And I just want to say hello to PFEC members that are watching this evening, um, the ones that are here in person, and I'm sure the ones that will be watching it later. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your work, and thank you for coming back on May 1st. Um, I am leaning strongly towards the Houghton Park and Ride, the 86,000 feet. Um, I'm really concerned about we build a facility large enough to for our future growth. Um, the, the North Kirkland community site is problematic, just it's more expensive to build there. There's traffic mitigation that would be required. Um, I, the, the site at Houghton Park and Ride, <clears throat> as Deputy Mayor said, is going to give us a lot of options for other parks programming. Um, the space is large. We could put a park in there. We could put a new uh, skate park in there. It just gives us a lot of flexibility. And as uh, the mayor said, the proximity to um, the local schools in that area that aren't served by Juanita High School and the other beaches are important. And, um, you know, it's adjacent to future development. So I think it's the right site to go. I am, um, and I, I've said this to PFAC, I just want to make sure that whatever we do, yes, PFAC has been very clear, which I appreciate, is that we need to put together a package that, that fits a dollar range that we're comfortable with. I just want to make sure that whatever we build is ready, for, that's large enough for future growth. Thank you. Councilmember Pascal. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Yeah, I wanted to respond to the location a question or preference and you know if I was thinking selfishly I would be uh, really focused on the North Kirkland <laughs> location I could easily walk and bike there um, if I was thinking about my neighbors directly around me I would be focused on that location but you know I think we're all wearing our, our citywide hats here on what um, 
is going to provide the, the, the most benefit um, and flexibility over the long term. And, and I am leaning towards that, that Houghton area, that Houghton location. But I guess what I would say is what would help me and perhaps others that haven't been involved in the process and discussions to date about this location versus the other and then trying to clear up, well, if the survey said this, but we're going this way, I think we need to be able to communicate that in a very um, a concise uh, a message that resonates with people. Um, so, and the mayor brought up uh, something, you know, just earlier about, you know, hey, you know, we have all these other facilities in North Kirkland and on South, and that's one criteria, but there's other criteria there that go into these location decisions, and it'd just be nice to be able to succinctly explain that. Uh, Maybe maybe you have that already, and I totally missed it. But but that would be something that I think I'd like to to have, um, and that would be helpful in making the final decision too. Um, so, just a nice to have. Yeah, it, it, it's quite complicated, and, and one thing that PFEC recognized, um, but we haven't really talked about much, is a facility, a larger facility at NK actually eliminates a park. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's that's a factor as well when folks are saying that park space is one of the the highest priorities. So it's gonna be quite a difficult decision, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, I do have a, a couple more slides, but I'm just gonna focus on one. Um, I've, got, I've got two more folks who wanna talk. Oh, so sorry. That's yeah. okay. Councilmember Nixon. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, <clears throat> so most of the points I was gonna make have already been made by my colleagues, and I'll, I'll just say ditto to the observations about uh, preferring the uh, Houghton Park and Ride site um, I would go as big as we can go just so that we can uh, uh, accommodate future growth, which is definitely going to happen with all the plans we're doing in the station area and those, those sorts of things. Um, uh, I'm with uh, Deputy Mayor Arnold in wanting to be able to enunciate some kind of plan for what's going to happen at North Kirkland. Um, and I'd be really interested in getting some more information about what could be done to update it, refurbish it, um, extend its life. Um, I, I, it, it needs some love right now. <laughs> so, um, And so I think that, that covers the issues there. Uh, one thing, one advantage the North Kirkland site has over the Houghton Park and Ride site is transit access, at least currently. And I think that we need to have a, at least a plan of some kind that we can talk about for how we're going to connect the Houghton Park and Ride Transit. Um, our batting average with Metro has not been great lately. Um, and so, I mean, should we consider having a city shuttle that goes between the BRT station or, or the downtown transit center or something to the Houghton Park and Ride site or maybe a loop through uh, the neighborhood that would go to the Bridal Trail Shopping Center, go through the station area and connect, um, connect to the K-Line, those sorts of things in the future. And, and so that's in addition to refurbishment of the NKCC, I'd also like to have some some further thoughts about transit connectivity uh, so that people elsewhere in the city can get there uh, without having to get rides from mom. Thanks. 
Thank you. Councillor Black. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, so I just wanted to, since the uh, staff is looking for our feedback specifically on this issue, I want to uh, weigh in. Um, I agree with the um, what I'm hearing from my fellow council members, um, one facility versus two. Part of it is cost consciousness, uh, which is not just my own, but also what we're hearing from our uh, our residents. And uh, the two facility option um, is the most expensive option. Um, I like the idea. I'm also thinking about the community input we received, of course, and the PFAC recommendations. Um, I also like that the um, Houghton uh, site is truly additive um, to our parks amenities and assets. Um, there's nothing right now. It's a you know it's a park and ride. Um, in the future, it'll be a you know crown jewel of potentially a crown jewel of our uh, parks system. Um, so those are that's what I'm sort of thinking about. Uh, one of the things I was really um, really caught my attention was during Sarah's uh, discussion was just how much this is. Um, if 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 the community were to decide to uh, pass a measure and to fund this uh, aquatic center and recreation center, just how much of this would be an investment um, in uh, youth and families in Kirkland? Uh, it's just it, it it's. It's just so, uh, it, it just, you know, you really drove home just how important this would be for that, um, that segment. And even though they vote in lower numbers than um, some of our older residents, uh, it's still something that I'm gonna be thinking about is that investment in our uh, youth and families. Um, I do like the, I, I, there is a part of me that really likes the 130 square foot option, despite my earlier comment about cost consciousness, and that is because it's an investment in our future growth. Um, something I've been thinking about, and I, this is such a complex issue, but with, you know, Kirkland has grown. It's grown since the day it was founded as a city, and it's grown every decade since then, not because of decisions necessarily that have been made by any elected leaders, simply by people making the decision that they wanted to live in Kirkland and build in Kirkland and have a home in Kirkland. That's gonna continue no matter what we do. And of course, we know, we all know that there are, um, you know, uh, statutory reasons why that's gonna happen as well. But <clears throat> that would happen whether we did nothing at all. It's a complex issue, but as the city grows, one, we have to accommodate that growth, but it also impacts this cents per thousand of assessed value on people's homes. Um, so although voters are gonna may, might be voting in November on, let's say, I don't remember the exact uh, amounts, but um, 19 cents per thousand, um, it would be an investment in the future growth of Kirkland, plus the future growth of Kirkland is actually going to affect the share of burden of that property tax on the folks who would be voting on today. Is that, is that accurate? It's accurate, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so much so that I think it's a lot to ask uh, in a survey for someone to uh, respond to some of the questions we've asked them to, to respond to, thinking about the current state of the city they live in and a current amount of cents per thousand. Um, you know, although I am definitely going to be listening to the results of the community survey, I'm going to be listening to what we've heard from PFECT, I'm also going to be thinking about the fact that this is an investment in the future, and the future doesn't look like today, and um, the 
share of property tax burden is not going to look exactly like it does today as the city grows. Um, and that's a consideration. Uh, of course, so is the, um, you know, the likelihood of the ballot measure actually passing. Um, lastly, I just wanted to uh, lend my support to, uh, although I support the one uh, site um, solution, I really do would like us to have a plan for the refurbishment of NKCC. I think we've heard that from staff. We've heard that from uh, my colleagues. Uh, we know that that's ending, it's reaching the end of its useful life, and uh, we're going to have to invest in that in some way or fashion. So I'd like to see that be part of our plan in one fashion or another. That's it. Thank you, Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, well, first off, I just want to say, fantastic job. This is so much work that's gone into this, and I'm just going to say a blanket thank you to everyone because I want to be able to eat dinner before our regular meeting, so I won't go into naming everybody, but thank you. Um, also, you know, my family is consistently on that list of 16,000 people, right? And so I feel this personally. And, you know, I'm a coupon clipping stay-at-home mom who totally also gets you know, the impact that a few hundred dollars a year is going to have on a typical family in Kirkland, too. So I just want to say that, that I get it, right? I, I represent that, and I get that. Um, following on to Councilmember Curtis's request earlier about um, kind of who votes, I think it'd be really important for us to have a little bit more detail in that who votes odd year, even year demographics, who votes spring, fall. Um, that would be really useful information for us to have. Um, compared specifically to the resident demographics as well, so we can kind of compare it to the survey results. Um, also, I want to say thank you so much for engaging our youth council on this. That's really valuable input. I really always value, as we all do, the input of our youth, because to Councilmember Black's point, we're making these decisions um, forward thinking for the future and not just for current residents. That said, given what we know about um, voter turnout and given what we know about the survey results, um, and in particular, the support that changes once cost is considered, understandably so, among older demographic um, and without children in the household. I would love to engage the senior council and get input on from them on, on this as well, similar to how we engage with the youth council. That would be really valuable input. Um, also wanted to clarify when I asked the question earlier about the site uh, selection. That was really to kind of cue up what Councilmember Pascal said that we really need to message in order to, you know, if, if we're hearing from more folks in the community that they want it at North Kirkland Community Center, we need to be able to sell the Houghton Park and Ride and why that's a choice we're making in a really neat package um, of messaging. So let's make sure that we do that. I um, also support one site over two. I mean, it's not only is it less money, but it, you know, from looking at the slide of program spaces to support activities, when we're looking at recreation, aquatics, and community, uh, it serves more people, the, the one site um, options, at least the majority of them do, the, the two at the Houghton Park and Ride do. Um, so I think that makes sense there. I also really value that in the Houghton Park and Ride options that we're looking at community gathering space, spaces. Uh, we've talked about this before, but just that need for event space for large events that we don't have here in Kirkland. And there's very, very few options on the east side. So that would be a huge value add for our community. And I think of like our nonprofits trying to host fundraisers and you know all kinds of things that could really um, benefit the community as a whole. Uh, I, also, looking at the, the Houghton Park and Ride 103 versus 86, 
on that same slide with recreation, aquatics, and community. It's interesting to me that despite the size difference, um, we're still serving a very similar number of folks um, with those two options. And so I'm leaning towards the 86. That's what was, what was recommended from PFAC. That's what would, I think, be more passable given the, the cost and given that we're serving a similar number of folks. And in fact, if you only look at recreation and aquatics and not the community um, space, we're serving more folks with recreation and aquatics with the smaller um, one. So I thought that was an interesting point. So that is where I am leaning on that. Um, and then again, just underscoring uh, the really the need as part of this conversation to really communicate to the public that we will have a plan for North Clarkson Community Center, that we're not going to ignore that, that we're very aware of it. Hopefully the fact that so many council members tonight are raising it is a really good sign that the community knows that it's on our mind. I know we've had some good um, conversations. I know um, staff is it's something that's on staff's mind that we're working on p uh, potential options there, but I just wanna make sure that not only are we working on that, but that we're communicating that with the public as well so that folks in the northern part of the city, not only do they understand why we selected the southern site, but they understand that we're not forgetting about the work that needs to be done in North Kirkland Community Center. Thank you. Thank you. Before I call on um, the city manager, I just wanna add a brief certain review of my own comments. I'm, I'm solid on the 86 at the Houghton Park and Ray. Um, but I want the ability to pop out walls in every direction. <laughs> um, so, and the ability to build the structure in a way that if we need to go up, we can go up. So, uh, and placed on the lot in a way that allows for those, those growth areas to happen um, thoughtfully. And support the refurbishment plan. City Manager. Okay. Well, thank you, Member. I was going to suggest that we hold the element discussion to the next meeting. I think you're going to have other thoughts on that as well. And I think we were expecting a lot more conversation at the next meeting about facility sites, which I think you actually just gave us a lot of direction. So rather than shortchange that or jam you by 730, my suggestion is we bring that back and make it the first part of the June 6th study session, if that's okay with the council. Looks like it is. All right. Well, so Lynn, any closing comments before that? Uh, none other than we look forward to having some more discussion and we'll bring a, a couple options and put together some different ways of looking at the information for your consideration. Thank you so much. And thank you all for your presentation. That was great. Thank you for your input. Thank you. This was very, very helpful. Oops, we are at item four on our agenda, honors and proclamation. We have a proclamation today for Jewish American Heritage Month, which Councilmember Nixon is going to assist me with. All right, and thank you, Madam Mayor and Councilmember Nixon, for walking out. I just want to let folks know that we'll be proclaiming May as Jewish American Heritage Month, and there are many resources and links um, in the memo on the webpage for folks who want to learn more. And also will be joined for the proclamation by the co-presidents of Kolami, a center for Jewish life, uh, Jeffrey Grossman, and Linda Bucky will be joining you up front. So welcome. So which one of you wants to hold the 
Proclaiming May 2023 as Jewish American Heritage Month. Whereas, Jewish American Heritage Month is an annual national observance celebrated by communities and organizations across the country since May 2006. And whereas, we celebrate the values, culture, and contributions of the enduring heritage of the Jewish people. And whereas, it is important to distinguish that Judaism is not only a religion, Judaism is a culture, and the relationship between the religious and cultural aspects of Judaism is complex and multifaceted, with some Jews identifying both religious, religiously and culturally, while others may identify with only the cultural aspect of Judaism. And whereas the Jewish people celebrate their religion and culture by gathering with family and community to give thanks, offer respect, and connect to ancient and modern traditions of Jewish life and identity. And whereas we as a community acknowledge that the Jewish people have endured anti-Semitism that has existed for centuries in Europe and elsewhere, reaching its height in Nazi Germany in 1933 to 1945, when the Holocaust permeated German and Axis-controlled Europe, resulting in the exclusion of many of Europe's nine million Jews from economic, political, social, and cultural life, the murder of six million Jews, and the displacement of millions of others, many of whom immigrated to the United States. And whereas we as a community also acknowledge that recently there has been a sharp increase in hate crimes across the country and in Washington state, with anti-Semitic incidents in Washington rising 44% in 2022, the highest number of incidents since 2019. And, second page. Whereas, tikkun olam, meaning repair the world, is a central tenet of Judaism and encourages Jews to engage in acts to make the world a better place. I'd say it encourages all of us to do that. And whereas today, there are over 6.4 million Jews living and contributing to our country's economy, culture, education, politics, arts, literature, science, and technological developments. And whereas the city of Kirkland strives to be a safe, inclusive, and welcoming place where everyone belongs and where anti-Semitism has no place in our community. And whereas the city encourages our community members to learn more at jewishheritagemonth.gov and celebrate and honor Jewish American Heritage Month by attending a cultural event, visiting a museum or historical site, reading a book, watching a film, volunteering, or connecting to a Jewish organization or charity, or talking to your friends and family about Jewish American contributions to American society. Now, therefore, Mayor Penny Sweet, on behalf of the City Council, does hereby proclaim May as Jewish American Heritage Month, where we honor the traditions, heritage, culture, and contributions of Jewish Americans in our community and our nation. We feel so welcome 
as the first progressive synagogue in Kirkland to have people who attended our um, Kirkland Together Recognizing Anti-Semitism Symposium a couple weeks ago and to have this, and I know Toby has been so involved in the interfaith movement in Kirkland and it feel, it's so lovely to feel safe in this community. And it's lovely to have you in the community. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, that takes us to item number five, communications. This is the time in our meeting when we normally hear from the public on matters that are not quasi-judicial <coughs> or scheduled for a public hearing, of which there are none scheduled this evening. Please limit your comments to three minutes and the council will receive up to three comments each on both sides of each issue. If you are present either in person or virtually and would like to address the council, during this items from the audience period, please sign up using the online public comment instruction link or in person using the posted QR code. For those participating by phone, please dial star nine to be recognized to speak. Community members will be called in the order in which they signed up. Items from the audience is an important part of our business meeting and we ask that everyone be treated with kindness and respect. We ask that you please not clap or applaud after a speaker or express your disagreement with a speaker. We want everyone in Kirkland to feel welcome expressing their viewpoints regardless of content. Because they can be disrupted, signs and placards are not allowed in council chambers during our meetings, regardless of their content. And the clerk will now call in order of sign up. Mayor, your first speaker is Susan Davis, and she's virtual, followed by Joshua Sharp and John Scheller. Hi, can you hear me? We can. Welcome, Susan. Hi, um, I'm Susan Davis. I had called in two weeks ago. Um, we're on North Rose Hill, and um, I'm just calling in to uh, hope that we get some resolution regarding um, at least getting the west side of the sidewalk completed from 85th uh, to 116th. I did see um, that in the, the this meeting tonight, you guys are going to address um, John Pascal's LMS, which I am very grateful for. Uh, he joined our neighborhood meeting last night, and so did Kimberly from the Transportation Department. I know that they're very compassionate and understanding and um, regarding our situation. Um, I know lots of other areas in the cities do not have sidewalks, but um, I really feel like it still hasn't been addressed. A couple things. There is a uh, project on uh, Northeast 103rd on the west side that's about 150 feet. It's been under construction for over three years. They need to start building a sidewalk as soon as possible. Also on Northeast 100th and 124th Avenue Northeast, again, this is the corner across from the, the fire station. It's a Metro bus stop and it's a Kirkland Middle School bus stop and it gets crowded. Uh, I really feel like there's no 
We have not been given a date when these are going to be completed. I am so glad that that memo did mention these other areas on the east side, but again, let's get a continuous sidewalk and our northeast 104th crosswalk that we're supposed to be getting. That's very important. And another thing, and people brought it up in the meeting last night, why cannot the city of Kirkland revise our code in any new development if there's not a site existing sidewalk in front of the development that after they do their land modification they have to build the sidewalk first before they start building the buildings what would this do well number one it would have gotten that hundred northeast 103rd um project there would have been a sidewalk first the northeast 92nd which is the merit homes uh i think project that that where the woman was unfortunately accidentally hit by a car when they start building in a month or two or six months, they would have to put in a sidewalk first, build that ditch, get her done, right? I mean, it's really easy. After land modification, they should be able to put in a sidewalk if one doesn't exist. Um, another thing that I would like to mention is, you know, it was great. The city of Kirkland um, Parks, I think his name was John and Sarah, were at our meeting last night. I got to tell you, I, we're not happy about this, this bond or levy park ballot. It's a blank check in perpetuity, right? There's no end date. And I think you guys really need to explain it to people that this 1.2 million per, I mean, $500 per 1.2 million home value is um, going to be forever, right? I, for some reason, thought the levy was going to maybe be 10 years max. It's permanent. We do not need a permanent levy. You also have to remember... Evergreen Hospital, they're going to have some kind of bond or levy on the fall ballot or winter ballot. And you know what? I'm not voting for our parks saying I would rather vote for a hospital to get improved because that's life or death. What we want for the recreation you, and Ms. the aquatic Davis. center, that is just Ms. Davis, nice to have. Your, your Thank time you. is up. Thank you. The next speaker is on site, Joshua Sharp, followed by John Scheller and Eric Donnelly. Welcome, Mr. Sharp. Hello. Thank you very much for paying attention to some of us business owners and our concerns about this pedestrian scramble. It's kind of controversial for everybody, and I think the consensus is the same for most people that I've spoke with that own businesses. I own a Under the Needle Tattoo, which is next to Bottle and Bull and across the street from the new building project. Um, we've suffered pretty hard with the new project across the street with lack of parking and nonstop construction for years now. And we have just come out of COVID and coming out of all the rough economy stuff that we're trying to navigate and to impact our businesses once again with loss of customers, loss of revenue, just feels really heavy on us and maybe even taxing to some of us. Uh, our businesses might not survive if this was to really happen in the middle of summer, our busiest time of the year where weather is everything to us and most of the winter, fall, spring are no pedestrians, no people walking. Washington, everyone has a car. Everyone wants to be able to pull up in front of the business. They don't want to walk two blocks to the library and park and come dragging their kids and bags another two blocks. So taking all of our drive-by drive traffic and all the parking is going to really impact us severely. Uh, some of the facts that were presented to us and the way that this community engagement person contacted us and didn't contact some people 
the facts that they gave us at the meeting were just, I just felt misleading and uh, rushed. I think that some of the ideas that they had, you know, they presented traffic is such a problem, but they only cited three accidents in the total of the testing period. And when they mentioned three, he like used exclamations and we all looked at each other like, did you say three accidents? Like this whole project is because of three accidents? So at no time will there be a good time to totally shut down Kirkland. So finding an alternate way to make this project work for everyone is really important, whether it's a partial closure, evening closures. You know, they said that it's very weather dependent. There was people testifying from the city, engineers saying the concrete had to be at 55 degrees in order to set properly. If you go forward or backwards in the time period of six months, there's never a time, whether it's fall or winter, where the temperatures stay consistently above 55 and without moisture. So devising a new plan, I think, would be the best option for everybody. And uh, I'm also scared of the impacts of an all-stop. Traffic is already so bad there. And if you were to produce an all-stop for, let's say, 10 people wanted to cross the crosswalk, well, that light already coming from down the hill and then the boulevard intersection and Starbucks, if you don't time those things correctly, it's already a, people are parked in the intersection and people can't go. And then you add another impediment, which would be an all stop in all direction, when really that would only be good for a festival. Mr. Sharp, I'm sorry, your time is up. Okay, thank, thank you so you. much, appreciate it. Our next speaker is virtual and it's John Scheller. Followed by Eric Donnelly and Heidi. Thank you, Mayor Sweet and council members. For the record, I'm John Scheller, Government Relations Manager for the King County Library System. I'm here to share the library's concerns about the tax increment area ordinance on tonight's agenda. This ordinance will directly impact library funding by freezing the voter approved library levy. Libraries are 96% property tax funded. We do not have the additional revenue tools that cities have. So any freezing or suppressing of the voter approved library levy has an impact on our operations, programs and services budget. KCLS is a regional service provider. We have 50 locations with 35 cities within our district boundaries. We're concerned about the cumulative impact of multiple cities pursuing long-term capital projects by freezing the library levy. We have some questions about the projected revenue allocations you received in your May 2nd tax increment financing materials. Are those able to be shared? Okay, there we go. Um, not sure how well you can see that, but if you're able to look at the library levy um, below hospital, um, this is the projected library revenue shared. Um, we had a couple questions. For one thing, I noticed the 2023-2024 levy rate indicated here is at 31 cents. And I wanna point out, we're actually at a historic low 22 cents. So we're about 10 cents lower than the numbers you received or about one third less than what's projected here. We also have a question about the library levy rate decrease over time in this projection the base property value stays frozen for the life of the project, which was our understanding from the explanation of tax increment financing. But the levy rate rejected here does decrease over time. Freezing the base value of the property assessed value 
should negate the 1% limit factor. Why does the le library levy decrease over the life of this? So this and other questions remain to be answered. And I wanted to make you aware of that and to just reiterate, this ordinance will have a direct impact on library funding. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Scheller. Our next speaker is Eric Donnelly, followed by Heidi and Katja Defani. Welcome, Mr. Donnelly. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm Eric Donnelly, and uh, I have leased the uh, web building that's at 89 Kirk Kirkland Avenue, uh, the main floor in the basement, and we'll be doing a Rock Creek restaurant in there. I have a restaurant on the uh, west side in Seattle. And uh, some direct concerns for us are that the, um, basically that we're looking forward to the project getting done, it's, you know, and, uh, and wanting to move forward, but the, um, as overlooking the packet and just seeing how it goes and the direct impact on all the business around us, um, that we would love to see it postponed potentially until fall or next spring, if at all possible. And the summer months, uh, as everybody's well aware of, are the major um, uh, revenue uh, generating months for all the businesses in Kirkland, thus giving us the funds to be able to um, operate through winter. And um, to Joss's sediment coming out of COVID and all those things, I completely agree with. Um, uh, last, I'd like to let the uh, city council know um, that the Kirkland uh, uh, Rock Creek portion and revenue should be somewhere in the 250 to 300,000 per annum, plus $140,000 uh, for the tenant improvement construction piece. Um, and those portions coming in Q2 and Q3 of this year. Uh, the retail space at the web building has been vacant for some time, and the city's financial department staff likely um, don't have any future collections in the city in that um, space as well. Um, but that's it, and we're just here to uh, be involved and be a part of the community, even though we're new to the community, and let us um, you know, voice our opinion, and thank you for that. Thank you, Mr. Donnelly, and thank you for coming to Kirkland. Your next speaker is Heidi, and Heidi, if you could share your last name. Is Heidi virtual or online? She's in the chamber, she said. Not here? Okay, the next speaker is Katja Defani, followed by Doug Davis and Kathy Iverson. Hello. Welcome, Katja. <laughs> Thank you. So I own Urban Wellness in downtown Kirkland, just off where the scramble will be, Lake Street and Kirkland Avenue. So a lot of things have already been said, but I definitely feel like pushing back the date is in our best interest as far as planning. Um, as far as changing the scope of the project or um, not having it fully closed, that's definitely something that would be, I would love to have reconsidered. Um, I will be directly impacted. There'll be construction, fencing, nobody will be able to drive through for at least two months. Everybody's telling me that most projects take way longer than expected. So definitely the timing of this is really hard. As Josh said, um, the construction across the street on Lake Street South has been going on for years and we've like been restricted in our parking. So of course that's an issue. Um, I'm all for safety, of course, and I understand that projects need to go on. However, the impact could be really severe, especially starting in July and ending in December, which December is my busiest month in downtown Kirkland because of holiday shopping. But the fall is actually really busy for us too. Although there's no good time, I definitely would prefer it was like early next year. Um, 
if that's possible at all, I think that would be better um, out of, like it's kind of one of those situations. It's not good timing ever, but it's definitely would be better if we had more time to plan. And also I just, I've said this to a couple of the council members, but I just feel like, yeah, communications with downtown Kirkland businesses have been lacking. Um, I also feel like it would be nice if there was like more opportunity to promote businesses when you're doing a big project like this, instead of just like, we just gotta figure it out and fumble through as best we can even putting banners on the buildings um, and doing things that would just like promote that the businesses are open and just making it as, as smooth of a transition as possible. Because like I said, I know projects need to go on, but this one is just really affecting all of us downtown. And all of us are very concerned for loss of business, especially considering the timing with it. It's, you know, the, the whole recession is very real right now and inflation is very real right now. And we're all feeling it, everybody that I've talked to. Um, this quarter in particular has been low, much lower than normal. And so going into summer, we absolutely need to get as much revenue as we can to even make it through the rest of the year. So that's all I have to say. Thank you very Thank much. You. Madam Mayor. Councilmember Nixon. Um, because it's kind of hard to tell whether the speakers on the scramble are for or against, I would like to move to suspend the rules so that we can have six speakers total on the scramble without determining whether they're for or against. Council? I'm good with it, yes. Thank you. Thank you. The next speaker is Doug Davis, followed by Kathy Iverson and Barbara Loomis. Welcome, Mr. Davis. Madam Mayor, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you guys for serving. It's not always easy to be a council member. I appreciate that. So um, I would suggest that we have a task force on this. We've had task force before. I've served on several of those. We should have a task force around this project. I think it should be delayed until February. I think I'd probably get a complete agreement on here that that probably is a good time to maybe start that project. I would also suggest you put a camera on our building or someplace on our site so people can see what happens there. We've been there since 1978. I've watched it many, many times. We've called 911 several many times. Uh, we have a, our demographic has changed. I have a lot more people, and I'll probably be one of those soon, walking on walkers. Uh, it's a little scary. So it would be helpful, but it would be nice to have a task force. There could be, like Kathy was talking about, promotions, make it fun, have it a good time, you know, come down, see what's going on. Do we really need to cut down the whole street? Probably not. There might be some things we could do. We could have police, public works, business owners, people there to talk about how to, how to make this work for everybody. I think it does need to get done. Something needs to get done. I was hoping we'd have a, like a test. We could turn on the lights and put some signs up and see if we can't do a test there without doing all the major cut down on parking and stuff. But right now it's not a good time to stop all the parking and stop all the, we need, we need to go to work. We need to get back to work and uh, give, us, give us a few months to work and then let's do this project and do it right with some people involved, other people involved. Thanks, Thank thanks you. for serving. The next three speakers are Kathy Iverson, Barbara Loomis, and Karen Lightfelt. Welcome, Ms. Iverson. Thank you. <clears throat> Good evening, um, Ms. Mayor and City Council persons and Mr. Triplett. My name is Kathy Iverson, and I'm a long-term member of this community. And in fact, I do remember shopping at the J.C. Penny store down here. So <clears throat> I have come to 
object to closing Park Lane. I'm aware that the city would like to make it a safe, walkable community. We in the outskirts of that can't really understand that, but I am a customer on Park Lane <clears throat> with restaurant attendance, retail, and some of the businesses. So it seems to me that in as much as you are encouraging us to buy Kirkland, buy local, that that doesn't make much sense to close Park Lane. There's many people involved in that. I believe that when I have been there, um, there have been cars that will come through Park Lane, stop, let, let older adults out of the car. I presume that they couldn't walk. So therefore, we need those 17 parking spaces. There is no parking in Kirkland, as we all know, and losing those 17 spaces doesn't really make much sense to me. But I think that the hybrid method that you have used, such as <clears throat> summer closing in the evening, maybe on Friday and Saturday after business hours, does make some sense. I think it worked out okay. But permanent closure to vehicles just shouldn't be. There's too much at stake for everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Iverson. Next speaker is Barbara Loomis. will be followed by Karen Lightfelt and Denise Bagallo. Welcome, Ms. Lo Loomis. Hi, y'all. Haven't seen you for a while. Um, I have a petition, and I'm like Kathy, I'm a longtime Kirkland resident, um, and I remember shopping at JCPenney's and Ben Franklin and a few others. Um, anyway, so I have a petition, and it says, Keep Park Lane Open to Vehicles. We, the undersigned, request that Kirkland City Council keep Park Lane open to all vehicles year-round and maintain all 17 parking places. One, Kirkland has never had enough parking. To lose 17 parking places isn't economical or logical. Two, it would financially impact the small businesses along Park Lane as well as rest, the rest of the downtown core. Three, many senior citizens shop and eat at the restaurants on Park Lane. Some have difficulty walking any distance and require close parking. Please, four, please let Park Lane remain a working street for businesses and restaurants and people. Um, I have 51 signatures on here and 29 people who signed are over... 55. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Who do you I want to give that to the city manager? The next speaker is Karen Lightfelt, followed by Denise Bogallo and Alex Zimmerman. Welcome, Ms. Lightfelt. Thank you, council members. I, too, am here to speak about the possibility that uh, Park Lane would be closed. Um, it, it's up for discussion on whether or not it would be for all the year, part of the year, 
Um, and the city is under, in my understanding, is doing a study which they're paying $75,000 to figure out what should be done. Meanwhile, um, as Barbara presented, um, there's petitions that indicate that almost all of the property owners and the businesses do not want to close to vehicular traffic on a year-round basis. So we've all heard that the important element for a success, successful business is location, location, location. A second point could easily be parking, parking, parking. And a third possibility could be free parking, free parking, free parking. Um, Park Lane has many elements of a good location. In addition to free parking, there is a good mix of shops and restaurants that bring customers to the street. Unlike any other street in downtown Kirkland, it is possibly the only street without huge, huge spaces with brown paper coverings on the windows. For the amenities that exist on Park Lane, the merchants are paying much higher rents. I thought that Park Lane had 19 parking spaces, but I stand corrected if there's only 17. These parking spaces turn over frequently. And at 19 spaces, that means that there were 76 cars a day pulling into the front of businesses on Park Lane, with the result that the people in those cars would be drawn into the businesses how can you mess with this exposure, and where are you going to replace these free parking spaces? Businesses are still recovering from the pandemic. Customers don't know if a business still exists, oftentimes, because many have gone out of business and changed to offices or something else. Customers are more likely to turn down Park Lane um, to see, well, does that business exist? Do any businesses exist if they can go in their car? But if you drive down Lake Street, you kind of look down Park Lane, and you have to pull into a pay parking lot to check it out. It doesn't make any sense. Um, also, the idea that if you turn off Lake Street down into Park Lane, what do you have but a pay parking lot? Now, if you're a potential new customer, do you really want to pull into a pay parking lot and then walk down the street, oftentimes in rain and wind, to see if there's anything interesting on the street? Karen, I'm sorry, your time is up. Oh, okay. Thank you. Next speaker is virtual, and it's Denise Bogallo, followed by Alex Zimmerman. Ms. Bagallo, are you there? Welcome. 
Hi, welcome. I was just waiting for the library announcement to finish because um, the libraries are closing at eight. Um, hello, Bear Suite and City Council members. Um, my name is Denise Pagallo, and I'm the Regional Manager for the King County Library System, or a Regional Manager for King County Library System. And the Kirkland and Kingsgate libraries are both part of my region. Um, first, I want to really thank the Council for your support of the of the Kirkland Library Board, Advisory Board. Um, I'm really excited about continuing to work with members of your staff, the Library Board, uh, and looking forward to what we can accomplish together for the Kirkland community. Uh, but I have uh, two very good uh, pieces of news that I wanna share with council tonight, um, and then just some information quickly about the summer reading, which starts on June 1st. Uh, but the first thing uh, that I wanted to share was after a period of evaluating some data about library fines, the KCLS Board of Trustees voted to stop charging late fines and to clear all current late fines from accounts beginning May 9th. We are so happy to be able to do that. Um, and we're joining a majority of our peer libraries in making this change for our patrons. So this is something we, we've been wanting to do. We just needed to do some, some data and research around it. So we're happy that that has now become effective. Uh, the second thing that I wanna let you know is that KCLS is in the progress of expanding our in-library service hours at all of our branches. We're doing this in a, a rollout kind of method. We just rolled out the first couple of, of regions and libraries um, just this past weekend. And our region, which is gonna impact Kirkland and Kingsgate Library, uh, will be uh, changing their hours and expanding hours beginning June 18th. Um, this includes being open five more days each week across our region, and our region includes Kirkland, Kingsgate, Woodenville, Carnation, Duval, and Skykomish. Uh, one of our goals was to make ours consistent, more consistent across King County. Uh, with this expansion, most of our branches will be open six days a week, Monday to Saturday, and within each geographic region, we'll have two libraries that are open seven days a week. Um, for our region, we're going to have Kingsgate and Duval Library will be open seven days a week. The Kirkland Library will be open Monday to Saturday. It's currently open Sunday to Friday. Uh, so, but overall for Kingsgate and Kirkland, we're, we're going to be netting 25 more open hours for between both libraries, which I'm really excited about. And I know the service is really needed in the city of Kirkland. So I wanted to share that information. And then, as I said, summer reading starts June 1st. Pick up a reading challenge log at your local library beginning June 1st or create an account on Beanstack to track your reading time and look for some upcoming programs at your library on our website at KCLS. Thank, Thank you. you. And thanks for the good news. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Next, next speaker and last person signed up is Alex Zimmerman. Thank you. Mr. Zimmerman, if you would leave your placard... Leave your placard at the, at the, put down your placard, please. As you know, it's against our rules. Almost gone. <laughs> okay. Okay. Zihail, my Dory Crooks, them 
Nazi Gestapo fascist from Animal Farm. My name is Alex Zimmerman, and I want to speak today about something critical situation what is we have right now. I never seen like this before in America. Bellevue right now, number one American city what is have white people minority. To me, it look like a pure Holocaust in genocide. And I look in, lose in Holocaust three my generation of families. So I know how this is dangerous. But it's not only about killing people. It's about situation what as we have right now in East East-Side. Mesley Island, Bellevue, Redmond in Kirkland in dangerous situation because council, Democrat mafia in Bellevue approve come Amazon. In Amazon will be bring 30,000 people from jungle. You understand how this is dangerous? In this situation, price or rent, for example, will be against double, and traffic will be nightmare. Is this beginning of Finnish white community in its size? And I live here for 35 years. I don't understand why it's going on. Why white people right now? It's very bad. It's a propaganda what has come from Democrat mafia. It's exactly what has happened right now. So I speak right now to everybody who listen to me. Stand up, guys. Stop this idiot. A happy cow. So what for Democrat? 85 percentage people vote for Democrat. It's the same percentage what is vote for Adolf Hitler Nazi in Gestapo in Germany 1939. Why? Why we have a fascist government who make us life miserable and Hitler destroy Germany? This Democrat mafia bandito will be destroyed all his side, totally. So I speak right now to everybody, stand up, stop acting like an idiot. We need to bring a council in this election who will be smart and stop in something what is destroy us for the last 20 years, totally. From Microsoft, remember? 50,000 people come and life in Bellevue all over around totally change. Fundamentally, we start paying more and more for everything. It's a problem what is I have right now. So, guy, please stop acting like a happy cow. Stop elect Democrat mafia what is make us life miserable. Be enough smart stop acting like a happy cow. Stop acting like an idiot. As goal right now, clean Mr. every Zimmerman? city in... Mr. Zimmerman, your time is up. Okay, I'm so sorry. Thank you. Before continuing, I want to offer a comment on, be on behalf of this council. We heard statements tonight that were frankly hurtful and offensive to our community. The city council does not condone those comments. We are committed to making Kirkland a safe, inclusive, and welcoming place for all. At the same time, items from the audience provides an opportunity for community members to express their views to council, regardless of content. Thank you. Are there any other? No other speakers signed up. Is there anyone else here who would like to address the council? Seeing none, I will declare this items from the audience period closed. This takes us to um, item number seven, special presentations, the King County Metro update. City Manager. Okay, thank you, Madam Mayor. So our Public Works Director, Julie Underwood, is gonna bring up a presentation, but we're delighted tonight to have our King County Metro General Manager, Michelle Allison, here. 
Uh, she's been with King County for 13 years in various uh, places before becoming the general manager. In the 13 years I've been here at King County, I don't think we've ever had the general manager visit us. So it's, it's nice to have them here, and they're going to give us a little bit of insight to the state of transit on the east side. So welcome, General Manager Allison. Yes, welcome. We're going to have to kind of peek over our screens at you. So. <laughs> no, I am a Thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation and for being here uh, or having us come this evening. I'm joined by my colleague, Graydon Newman, who is a service planning supervisor, and Amanda Pleasant-Brown, who's a government relations administrator. We're going to co cover a couple of topics tonight. I'll uh, wait a second until the slides are uh, pulled, but I just want to express our appreciation at King County Metro for the partnership we have with the city of Kirkland. It is, uh, we are only successful uh, when we have these partnerships with our jurisdictions that really help us create mobility alternatives for your residents. We also know how important it is to hear from you, to understand what you need from a transit service provider, where your growth is happening, where residents want to go and how they wanna get there. And all of that really helps inform our planning. So thank you so much. We have several examples tonight of just how powerful that partnership is in action with various programs that are being implemented now via MetroFlex and those that are being planned for the future, which we know the K-Line is an exciting part of the city's transportation planning. Both of those are really good examples of the power of our partnership together. So we, we really appreciate it. We appreciate your staff who works really hard with us and our collective teams at Metro. So thank you for that. So we just need one second to transfer the presentation to the website here. There we go. There we are. So we know time is tight tonight, but we wanted to talk about a couple of uh, hot topics that we know are of interest to the city and to your residents. And we'll start with our service changes that were announced last uh, week and want to give a little bit of context and then um, provide a couple of really specific examples for the city of Kirkland. As Metro has experienced recovery from the pandemic, we also recognized that we faced really unprecedented challenges in our uh, workforce and our supply chain issues. As you all may have heard from the writers of the system or experienced it yourself, over the past year or two, we have had some service reliability challenges, which presented itself in trip cancellations. What was scheduled on the street wasn't always what was delivered, and that, created some, that has created some real frustration both internally for our operations folks who want to deliver all that service and for riders who show up to a stop and expect a trip that may not come. Currently, Metro is delivering around 96% of our scheduled service. We are proud of that number. We're working really hard on that number. But we also know that 4% of canceled service has impacts. And each of those percentage points means something. Each person whose trip is canceled and they get frustrated and they want to use that system that creates a reliability challenge that we know we needed to address. So what we made the challenging choice for our September service change, we do service changes twice a year in our system, so the next opportunity for us to go in and make some adjustment really is for September. We recognized that what we needed to do was stabilize our system. So we can bring riders back, they can have reliable service, they continue to make the plans that they need for their mobility options, and they can then trust that the service will be there as scheduled. So we've made the challenging decision. For September, we will temporarily suspend about 150,000 hours on our system. Let me see if I can use technology to help me out here. Totally do. I'm good at some things, not good at the PowerPoint, so thank you. Uh, so what we, are, uh, what we are announcing, and we announced last week, 
is around 150,000 hours. What is that in context? Well, that is roughly about the same amount of service that's going to be delivered today in September. But the change is going to be felt in the reliability and consistency of that service. What we have in schedule today isn't always what we're able to provide on the street. The goal of this suspension in September is to really have the schedule reflect the experience of the writer. So most people throughout our system will not see any changes, but some will. And City of Kirkland residents will as well. So I'll have uh, Graydon spend a minute on that in a second. But really want to note that what we're trying to do here is provide some space for Metro to really expand our workforce and meet the needs of that workforce for the service we want to offer. And then work with community and jurisdictional partners to understand where those suspended hours should go back into the system. We know that people are using transit differently than they did before. There's more demand for all day, weekend, and nights, using trips in off-peak and maybe for less return to work. Just really different, more flexible ways. So we want that service to be reinvested in a way that matches those community expectations and needs. So we are going to be working with each jurisdiction to better understand what that looks like. We're also making this announcement now in May because we want to give ourselves as much lead time as possible to do the engagement and the outreach with people who are affected, to talk them through which may be some alternatives or some mitigations for lost trips. So we're making this announcement now to have as much transparency and engagement with folks as possible so that when that service adjustment comes in September, people are as ready as possible as they can be. I'm going to have Graydon talk through a little bit of the specifics, especially as they apply to the city of Kirkland. Thank you. And uh, as uh, General Manager Allison mentioned, um, we're facing constraints, and really the goal of this is to, uh, to right-size the system to what we can deliver reliably today. And um, we recognize that these are tough choices. These are tough choices for my team that was working through this with others in Metro, um, and these are choices that are going to have impacts on the community. Um, we did seek to minimize the impacts uh, through a variety of ways. Uh, one of those is really grounding in our policy, which, uh, which provides guidance on how we reduce service when we need to, including in this temporary circumstance. And that includes uh, really looking at where ridership is, um, is really struggled to rebound. Um, and that may be because uh, travel demand has changed. Um, and those are some of the conversations we're looking forward to having with folks. Um, but in addition to those factors, we really took a, a fine grain analysis to look at um, where can we reduce service without with the least customer impact, um, where we don't create crowding, where we allow for uh, room in the system uh, for riders to continue to come back to the system following the fall service change, um, looking to support student travel to schools and ensure that the trips that, that uh, students rely on are maintained in the schedules. Um, and also uh, minimize where uh, there's coverage loss, where customers may not have other alternatives. And so the result of that is uh, really a full uh, package of these temporary suspensions um, that include uh, the suspension of 20 uh, peak-only commuter routes. These are routes where we have continued to see um, ridership uh, being significantly less uh, than uh, circumstances in the pre-pandemic, uh, where uh, some you know folks may be uh, uh, working from home more um, and, and not traveling using those peak commuter routes. Um, we also uh, are uh, having some temporary and implementing some uh, temporary frequency reductions on uh, about 12 routes. 
throughout the system, as well as some additional changes uh, to improve the customer experience on additional 13 routes that we typically do in routine service changes twice a year. Um, some specific impacts for Kirkland I just wanted to call out are uh, on four uh, all-day routes that operate in the city of Kirkland. Uh, these are uh, uh, service level uh, reductions, so where a, a, a service may uh, just be a, reduce, a reduction in frequency, but we keep the span of service, how long it operates, the same. And those are on routes 225, 230, 231, and 255. And uh, in addition to that, two of the fully suspended routes of that 20 um, uh, ha do have stops in the city of Kirkland. Those are routes 237 and 342. Um, these operate in other uh, parts of the county as well, but uh, it is an impact for Kirkland, and we totally uh, recognize that and, and see that. And um, I did want to also call out that for all of these suspensions, for nearly all the riders that are using these routes now, there are service alternatives available. The trips may look a bit different, um, but those uh, service alternatives are available, including, um, and uh, uh, talk about this in a moment, um, the, through Metroflex um, with the Juanita area um, that, that can provide um, additional coverage and access to the transit system for, for customers in the area. Uh, one second, I have a question here. Councilmember Falcon. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, thank you so much for this information. I know this is likely hard news to deliver, so I appreciate you, your transparency and wanting to make this announcement sooner so folks can plan, so I really appreciate that. Um, I just have a couple of questions. Um, you used the word temporary, so can you speak to that a little bit and what the plan is um, around it being temporary? And also, um, when will the new schedules be published so that folks have some specificity? Is that already available, or do, or do we wait until September to have those schedules? Sure. Um, so the temporary in nature is really, we have um, a lot of service hours that are in the system that are suspended because we've made similar adjustments throughout the pandemic in response to many numerous challenges that we've experienced. Um, and uh, there are really two ways that these uh, service hours and service will come back into the system, which we're really excited about, actually, uh, because you're right, this is not the news we like to deliver. Um, and uh, those two areas are really to be consistent with our overall recovery, and um, we do have um, uh, uh, plans for uh, continuing community engagement in areas to really see, um, uh, as the German mentioned, um, really see what the community needs are today, uh, where, where we might need to change service, where service might need to come back differently than when it left the system. Um, so uh, those long, longer term changes, which may be more significant, but they may not, that really depends on the outcome of community conversations. Um, those uh, will be part of uh, a, a larger uh, process that, that we can follow up with um, uh, more details as we continue to, to evolve our service recovery plan. Um, but there's also changes that uh, we expect um, that we would essentially, when we have workforce capacity, to be able to bring back into the system as soon as we're able to. So one example I'll give is, is the uh, service uh, impacts on Route 255. We know that it's a critical artery, a transit artery for Kirkland. And um, we certainly didn't take this decision lightly. And that's an, an example where, where we don't envision those services, you know, there's some dramatic change somewhere else. We envision really trying, we're really reinvesting those resources back into where they were reduced. So it's kind of, it depends on the specific change. Um, and to your question around service schedules, um, we will be coming out in advance of the service change. Um, and if you'd like, we can follow up with more specific timing. 
I would also add, as I know this is an important topic, those service hours that are suspended will have the conversation with the areas where they're suspended in to say, where should they go back? And to Graydon's point, it's not all equal. There won't be a day where we flip it back on. Each route will have a different conversation based on where those hours are best going to go. The 255 may just go faster because we have recovered sooner and we know those that route is popular versus something that may um, be better redistributed to provide different connections in a different way. But they will be part of that local conversation where those hours were suspended. Thank you very much. Yeah. Other questions? Don't see any right now. Great. Uh, so uh, thank you, Amanda. Metro Flex is another really exciting part of um, our system from a mobility perspective. And we're also hoping that this can be a really good alternative for folks to get to know the options available in Metro Flex if they are impacted from the service reductions. Metro Flex is a brand of on-demand or microtransit service. As you'll see from this slide, it um, gives you a little bit of a description about how it works. We've been testing this app-enabled on-demand service since 2018 through various names. We folded them all under one umbrella here. And we've been uh, working with different technologies and operators. In March, all of our on-demand services were consolidated into a single operator and technology provider, which allows us to have a better brand, a better experience for consistency for customers, some operational and staff efficiencies with some cost savings, and the preservation of innovation and being able to build off of those successes. So this really allows us to, to try a bunch of things on and then um, keep those ones that are working in the system and expand, uh, expand different opportunities. So what you'll see here is the map of Juanita. And this is in the Metroflex zone, which is one of several across the county. And again, this is another demonstration of that great partnership that we have with the city of Kirkland to really figure out what's going to work. The beauty of Metroflex is it's incredibly tailored to the neighborhood characteristics and the demands of each of our jurisdictions. This pilot launched in September of 2020, and that timing was a little bit unfortunate, right? It definitely was impacted by the pandemic, so keep that in mind, and we will also keep that in mind as we're looking at the data and information on how Metroflex is doing. Metroflex uh, service operates Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. in this area. And our pilots are evaluated using three key metrics from our service guidelines, equity, productivity, and efficiency. We're planning to do some evaluation of our entire Metroflex system uh, towards the end of this year. And what you can see here is just a review of the information to date of the program. And right now we have roughly 53,843, not roughly, that was very specifically, uh, riders, uh, rides on Metroflex. So again, uh, you will see the Juanita geog geography there. But again, we really do think this is one space where partnering with our jurisdictions to help with outreach and communication and understanding how to meet those riders and get information out is incredibly important. Programs like this work best when we have that coordinated communication. It is hard to reach possible writers where they are, and you all know that, right? You understand the business community, your individual constituencies and what their needs are, and you, you have ways to communicate with them. So we would love to continue to explore partnerships, especially for outreach and communication, so we could really market Metroflex and see how we can leverage the potential ridership. So moving now to our last topic, which we are excited about and know that the city is as well, our Rapid Ride K-Line. So again, the incredible partnership and patience of the city and your staff is noted through this project. 
to date, we have worked really, really hard on some really strategic um, elements of this project, both <coughs> to make sure they're represented in our budget and in our 10-year plan, but also the city took some really bold steps to ensure that even though um, at that time we were still having some question about where this project would be in the metro budget, the city <laughs> went out and got some grant funding for efforts that were incredibly important to the K-Line. And this is the 108th Q-Jump project. This is a bus-specific project, and we really appreciate and want to acknowledge the city for taking that action and for securing those dollars. It is that kind of partnership that allows the Rapid Ride program to work and to invest in the bus rapid transit corridors, which we know are really, really desired in this jurisdiction. So thank you for that. Metro's budget currently supports delivery as early as 2030, and we need to, to complete some more design work before we land on a more specific date. So we'll um, definitely be in touch with you all as we better understand what that is looking like. We have re-engaged with your technical staff um, and we're working to really understand what partnership looks like on this corridor. These things include, uh, items of a partnership could include role in funding and grants, definitions of project permitting processes, review expectations and decision-making authority to really help us with that timeline when we understand what those permits and processes look like can really help us move through in a more expedient manner. We also wanna talk with the city more closely about design and delivery capacities of each agency so we understand how we can leverage each other's capabilities. And again, we also just wanna see if there are other spaces like the 108th um, Q-Jump where we can continue to leverage each other and see where we can go after those dollars or get some individual projects that will support the K-Line in its implementation. So again, a lot more work underway, a lot of good technical work that has been relaunched since this program is now firmly back in our budget uh, and our 10-year projections as well. So thank you for that and thank you again for your patience on this project. We know it's taken a little bit of time, but we're really excited that we are where we are um, and to keep it going. And that's, that's all I have, which is a lot for uh, however many minutes I've been rambling on. So <laughs> if there's questions, but again, um, this does not have to be the one and only time that Metro uh, comes before you all too. So thank you for the invitation today, but uh, we look forward as, as interested for us to come back and talk about whatever topics of Metro that are of interest to you all. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, again, thank you so much for being here tonight. Transit is something that I grew up on and is very near and dear to my heart. So um, thank you. I appreciate the work that you do. One of the things as a mom of three kids that I'm super excited about is free youth um, ridership. Um, and so you're talking about partnership and some of these things. I'd love to have additional conversations. I know we've had some already around how we can encourage more youth in our community to, to utilize transit, to incentivize, you know, I know some of the ideas we've talked about is, you know, having uh, a, a ride together with a bunch of middle schoolers or elementary school kids from up on Finn Hill, where I live, uh, taking the 225 down to Village of Totem Lake to get some ice cream or something like that to really just educate kids on one, that, you know, it's not that hard to ride transit. It can be fun and really convenient, and you can gain a sense of, in sense of independence, um, and also just just building that confidence that if they've experienced it once, that they can do it again. So anyway, I would love to continue that conversation around how we can partner on ideas to get our children and youth to ride transit. 
Thank you. And thank you for writing Transit and for introducing it to your children. It's really important for us to build that next generation of writers, and it does start really early. And we are really excited about the success of the free youth fair program to date. We think there's a lot of opportunity to continue to expand it, so we'll take you up on that. Uh, It is a a really great program, but it only works, again, if people use it. So definitely want to continue to encourage that outreach. Um, thanks, Madam Mayor, and thanks, Michelle Graydon and Amanda, for being here tonight. Uh, just for those, uh, just a little bit of background, I am uh, the vice chair of the King County Transit Regional Transit Committee, so I get to interface with Metro staff and Michelle uh, each month at our, our Transit Committee meetings, and so it's been great getting to know you and glad to have you at the helm uh, during this pivotal time, right? There's a lot of challenges that the transit agency faces, and you've gone over many of them, the staffing, the security, the ridership changes, um, and just all the service changes that are going to come along with that from completion of sound transit lines, both uh, the bus rapid transit and link light rail. Um, I would say that there's a lot of a good thing is going on in Kirkland with the Flex. I'm glad you went over that, the Metro Flex, that, that deserves more attention and more uh, communication and marketing to our community so they know that that's an alternative out there uh, that they can use. The, the Zero Youth Fair that Councilmember Falcone said, there's, I think, a lot of opportunity there that we still haven't completely harnessed, not just as a city of Kirkland, but also just the greater King County um, area. And then with the K-Line, uh, you know, I think the thing there is that there's still a lot of work, obviously, that's left, and it's still not a funded um, project from an operating perspective. And so that's going to be something that we have to continue to work together on. Uh, the the adjustments in, in ridership and what we see in Kirkland, I think those that have u- that use transit um, have, have recognized that ridership hasn't come back, particularly in North King County. And we're starting to see some of the effects of that where, where transit service is being uh, modified um, because you're, you're having to look at where you're providing um, benefits to the most number of people, right? Um, and so as we do that, you know, I, just, I guess I would just stress to continue to look at opportunities of, of where we can um, change and adapt to kind of what our community needs. Um, and, not just Kirkland, but but other areas, and I think you're seeing that across the northeast side. And I, I just look look forward to working with you on that, kind of defining what that is. Um, the our whole uh, schedule changed right before COVID hit, like the week before COVID hit. Our entire route structure changed for most for across Kirkland, and we just we we ha- it's been it's been hard to see kind of the effects. What we know is that. And what we've heard is there's a lot of folks that, that want to see uh, improved service um, from that. And so I just think that we need to continue thinking about how we, how we modify and adapt to the changing circumstances. So thank you. Thanks again for being here. First time in, what, a couple decades that the general manager's been <laughs> before us. Well, let's break that. Yeah. <laughs> Keep coming back. <laughs> I think, Thank you for that. And I also really just recognize that we see this as an opportunity. It is disappointing to be where we are, but we also know that it's the right thing to do to stabilize the system and then to take advantage of that moment to have those exact conversations. If we have these service hours to reinvest, where do they best need to go? 
And that is exactly what we hope to do as we have this um, work inside the organization to continue to get our workforce and our supply chain issues addressed, but then also really to listen, to listen to the city of Kirkland and what, what you want from Metro. If you please. The 255 rides right through it. Um, and it could speak, I think, potentially to the low ridership or the, the low usership. Um, have you taken that into consideration as you look at the cost per ride? That is something that we, uh, that we have looked at. It was the transition to Metroflex. So actually, when you use the app, um, there is an accounting for um, if there is a, a fixed route alternative, if, if a rider is near uh, the 255 or another route, and that is uh, a better option for them, it will actually say, it will actually provide that option and, and then you know, not, not offer the, Metro, the MetroFlex, the flexible service. Um, so in a way, the software does us a favor by trying to mitigate any impacts or you know, cannibalization of ridership that we call it, which is a little bit dire, I understand. <laughs> uh, but where, where we're, we don't want to pull away ridership from one service to another. Um, we want to provide a, a really good option for customers. And um, the, the software on the back end does, does help us, um, does help the customer actually uh, identify what is the best option for them. But I hear your point. We may be sort of getting some more writers on the 255 because they got there from the flax. Exactly. Discussion. Yep, hear right. that too. And thank you for that. Um, my other comment is just a reminder that we are building a, <laughs> a bus rapid transit station on 85th. Mm -hmm. And for your future consideration, we will do whatever it takes to be sure that we've got good access from Redmond uh, from downtown Kirkland on a regular basis um, because we are not building parking in that area. Mm -hmm. And just want you to know that we're going to be pushing you harder and harder the closer we get uh, for consideration of lines there. Please do. Amanda's taking good we'll notes, do. too. Thank so you, we'll Amanda. make sure we're ready for it. Yeah. Well, thank you, thank Michelle, you. for coming today and bringing your team. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you all. Thank you so much. Okay, that takes us to item number eight, our consent calendar. Before we have a motion, I'd like to ask Deputy Mayor Arnold to present an audit of the accounts. Thank you, Madam Mayor. We had payroll in the amount of $3,725,306.51 and bills in the amount of $6,095,908.64. Thank you. Can I, get a, can I get a motion to? So moved. Second. Been moved by Councilmember Curtis, seconded by Councilmember Falcone. Any discussion? The question is on the motion to approve the consent calendar. All those in favor say aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries unanimously. This takes us to item number nine, our business agenda. Item A on that agenda is tax increment area ordinance. City Manager. Okay, thank you, Madam Mayor. So uh, making this presentation, it's going to be Michael Olson, our Director of Finance Administration. Uh, but we do have our consultants um, online virtually as well. He has a very short one-slide presentation, and we're looking for action, but we will answer the questions that were raised by the uh, library. Thank you. Good evening, Mayor, Deputy Mayor, and Council Members. It is a very short presentation, and as uh, the City Manager said, we have Bob Stowe and Morgan Shook available online, too. 
answer any questions. This is just a brief timeline of the history of how we got to where we are today. Uh, last August, the Kirkland City Council received the first presentation on tax increment financing and the potential tax increment area. And then after that meeting, we reached out to the King County Assessor and Treasurer's Office on the proposed tax increment area to uh, work with them on how that would be implemented. The uh, uh, project analysis, the final project analysis, was submitted to the Office of the State Treasurer just this past March. We had our two required public briefings in the month of April. And then uh, at the last council meeting, there was a presentation where we received feedback on the proposed TIA ordinance. I'd like to point out that Section 4 of the ordinance provides the flexibility on infrastructure for transportation, parks, and utilities that we're looking for that, uh, on projects that can be financed with the tax increment financing. And also to note that the ordinance was reviewed by our bond council and our city attorney so that it meets all the state requirements. And we have before you tonight the consideration of the adoption of Ordinance 4846 to create a tax increment area in Kirkland. Any questions? Councilmember Falcone. Well, thank you, City Manager, for raising the comments that were made earlier tonight about the library. Um, can you address the concerns that Mr. Scheller raised earlier tonight about the King County Library system and the impacts on their budget? Yes, I believe we have Morgan Shook uh, available virtually. Great. Um, thank you, Michael. Yes, so there are two questions I believe that the district had uh, having to do with understanding how the um, uh, TIF will work relative to their budgets. And uh, there are two separate but related issues. Um, one is basically how does using tax increment finance affect um, regular property tax levies that are um, affected uh, impacted under TIF. And then the second question is how then do uh, tax allocations flow from those dis from, from those properties that within the TIA to the city to pay back um, you know, bonds or uh, other infrastructure costs? So I'll take the second part of that first, um, the, because it's fairly straightforward. Um, the uh, when you create TIF, uh, the uh, city will lock in a base value, so basically the certified values in 2022 uh, within the tax increment area. And then any valuation above that base value is called increment value. And the uh, taxes are allocated to either the existing jurisdiction, they get basically the uh, base value times their levy rate in that year, and that's what will flow to the district. And then the increment value, so basically any valuation above the base value uh, times that year's levy rate will um, go to the city uh, as a form of tax uh, increment value uh, revenues. So that part is straightforward, and I think it's easy to uh, get to the conclusion that this will impact uh, levies and budgets for those affected jurisdictions. But the TIF law um, had an approach to sort of do no harm to districts. And what uh, it does uh, to implement that is that it includes something called an increment value add-on, which is a, a special add-on value, much like your new construction add-on value that is on top of your 101% levy growth. And that increment value is basically equal to Oh, sorry, the increment value add-on is 
equal to the amount of increment value. So the valuation above the base times last year's levy rate. And so uh, as those two levy rates track that increment value, a jurisdiction will collect a little bit more, a little less in any given year, depending on how the levy rates change. Um, but uh, our analysis looking at this and Kirkland and other jurisdictions shows that for most parts, uh, when you have sort of a declining levy rate, you're basically going to probably end up just slightly ahead um, for that jurisdiction. So there'll be the amount of tax increment value add-on will exceed the amount of tax uh, value add, uh, tax allocation value that is distributed back. So that is a very sort of uh, simple answer to a very complicated uh, question. Um, but all, all to say is uh, the district has asked a very good questions and hopefully that answer uh, is helpful for them. Hopefully it is. <laughs> uh, Councilmember Nixon. Oh. And just to, just to pull on that thread a little further, um, what if a jurisdiction has a new voter-approved levy during the increment period? Yep. What property value does that new levy apply to? Okay, uh, that's another great question. So uh, any voter-approved levy, so if it's an excess levy, so if it's tied to like a bond, perhaps those excess levies are exempt. So it only applies to regular levies. And so in this case, if you went to the voters and asked for a levy lid lift, the levy lid lift uh, would be impacted under TIF. And so here is where it gets can get a little more complicated, but typically the reason you know that jurisdictions are going to go out to levy lid lifts is because of the sort of compounding effect of the 101% limit relative to the purchasing power that they need the property tax to bear. And obviously this is very acute for many junior taxing jurisdictions that are only reliant on the property tax. And so when they go to voters and ask for the levy lid lift, right, it's because their levy rate has been falling um, significantly, but mostly because of the effect of what they need to raise in the property tax. So they'll ask the voters to kind of raise um, their legal limit uh, to a higher level and then reset their rate. So in that year that that happens, so remember, they get the special property tax addition, the uh, increment add-on value, and that's that times that value times the previous year. So if you had, a, say, a levy rate of 20 cents and you got to, on a million dollars your increment value, you'd be able to raise, you know, um, uh, $2,000, right? Um, and then, but, and then in the subsequent year, right, if you were to raise the levy lid lift and it would go to 30 cents, um, you know, that first year you would have to send back you know, the increment on that, so roughly $3,000. So you might be in the whole $1,000 for that first year. But then over time, right, the levy is going to start slowly declining. Um, and then most likely things will probably balance out. But for any jurisdiction that is thinking about doing a levy lid lift during the time of TIF, which is highly likely for most jurisdictions um, uh, that uh, have regular property taxes, they'll want to make sure that they consider that issue as they try to size the levy lid lift appropriately uh, for their uh, funding needs. That answer your question? No. Councilmember no. Curtis. I just want, for the record, Michael had a wrinkled face too. <laughs> it's a complicated issue. It is complicated. All I was gonna say is if we could possibly reach back to Mr. Schiller, I'm sure he's still on the call, but um, just to answer his questions and address his concerns. 
I yeah, I, I'd be happy to spend some more time going over this. I know property tax in Washington is is uh, is not not the most sort of transparent and easy intuitively to understand. So thank you, thank you for that. Okay, then Michael, uh, I guess what I'm looking for is a motion. So moved. Okay, moved by Councilmember Black, seconded by Deputy Mayor Arnold to adopt ordinance 4846. Uh, discussion, any further discussion? Clerk, will you call the roll? Councilmember Nixon? Yes. Councilmember Black? Yes. Councilmember Curtis? Yes. Councilmember Falcone? Yes. Councilmember Pascal? Yes. Deputy Mayor Arnold? Yes. Mayor Sweet? Yes. Um, ordinance 4846 is approved. Uh, Councilmember Curtis? Madam Mayor, I love having full chambers, but it's still nice outside, and I would, I assume everybody here is for the scramble, so I'd like to make a motion that we go ahead and hear item 9, got all my glasses on, 9D. Um, next. Next. Second. Moved by Councilmember Curtis, seconded by Councilmember Falcone. Any discussion? All those in favor? Say aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries unanimously. That takes us to item D, uh, the Kirkland Avenue and Lake Street Intersection Improvements Project update. City Manager, are you ready? Hey, thank you, Member. We just need a little bit to get the staff here to get that presentation ready. So. <laughs> That's okay. Great text. It is cool. But I definitely appreciate the desire, so. Um, they'll be here very soon. We know these meetings are an awful lot of fun. <laughs> I know you love that last That's right. And that you know all about taxing increments. Well, right. Okay, so <laughs> success. So our capital projects coordinator, Craig Martin, is going to make the presentation. Craig, thank you for uh, listening and being flexible. We appreciate it. Thank you, Sydney Manor Triplett. Uh, good evening, Madam Mayor and Council members. I'm here to discuss the project update for the Kirkland Avenue and Lake Street intersection improvements. I'll first start uh, by apologizing for the incorrect graphic that was included in the memo. Uh, the graphic that's displayed on screen now is the correct depiction of what the intersection will look like uh, after construction is completed. So to go over the, the background, the purpose of the project is to improve pedestrian safety and reduce the pedestrian crossing time, all while uh, beautifying the downtown area and enhancing surface water facilities. The work includes the raised concrete intersection, the ADA ramps, curb bulbs, and urban design features, which include uh, benches, bike racks, and decorative pavers. For the purpose of the project, uh, the full closure of the intersection during construction is a closure to all vehicular travel. The sidewalks will remain open to pedestrians and business access will be maintained. And after the full closure, the sidewalk closure will require the closure of each individual corner of the intersection while maintaining business access and coordinating the access to minimize impacts. This work will be done one corner at a time. As for the schedule, uh, PSC was expected to complete the design of the service, the signal service in late 2022. 
they were not able to meet their schedule. And now the design is scheduled to be completed this month. Uh, and during that time, I worked with the Department of Transportation to secure some additional federal funding to cover the shortfall for the project. Because of that, the construction funds cannot be obligated until the transportation improvement plan is published, which will happen in mid-June of 2023. Below is the new proposed schedule that will occur in spring of 2024. This has a projected advertisement date in late 2023 with a bid opening in January of 2024. Once the contract is awarded, a material notice to proceed will be given for long lead items. Uh, signal poles can take up to five months to procure, so we want to make sure we get the contractor working on those with construction notice to proceed given in April of 2024. This will allow for the full closure to be completed before the 4th of July weekend and the sidewalk work, which is everything behind the new curbs, to be completed after the 4th of July weekend with a projected project completion date of September, 2024. The staff's recommending the spring 2024 construction schedule to limit the risk of the extended closure being extended and to limit the risk of construction quality due to weather. This will also allow the businesses and public more time to plan around the closure and for city staff to coordinate and work with those businesses and public uh, to ensure this runs as smoothly as possible. I'll leave you here with a rendering of what the project will look like when it's completed uh, and open up to any questions. Councilmember Curtis. Since I switched the order, I'll go ahead and start first. Um, it's really unfortunate that this got pushed out to the summer and we've heard you all that this is not gonna be um, good for our businesses. So I support the staff recommendation of delaying this in 2024. I, I am concerned, as someone said earlier, that things happen and this will get spread out. So I would like to stress that we need to do as much pre-planning as possible so that we don't run into supply chain issues or anything like that. Um, there was some input that I thought was really useful this evening and that we've received. I love Mr. Davis's idea of doing a task force that we're all working together to make this as um, beneficial and as positive as possible. Um, we also received some feedback about um, Move, making sure that construction parking is off-site. I don't know how we can regulate that, but I also think that would be very productive. Um, anything that we can do to help mitigate the impacts on, of this on the businesses I think would be helpful. There was another suggestion of perhaps using Kirkland Cash. So I'd like to see how we can be creative to support the businesses through this. I do think this is a good project. I think that we'll all love it when it's done. Um, we're just going to do our best to um, make it go as smoothly as possible. So thank you for bringing this alternate schedule to us. I think we should move forward. Thank you. Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor, and thank you, Craig. Um, well, first of all, thank you so much to the um, business owners and business leaders that are here tonight and that reached out to us. Um, 
I wasn't aware of the schedule change uh, until you alerted me of it. So thank you so much for bringing that to our attention. I know I wasn't the only um, council member who reached out to staff when we heard about this and, and shared your concerns. And we really appreciate you being here and for reaching out to us about that. Um, and thank you also to our amazing staff for being so responsive uh, to uh, the business community and to council members raising this concern. Um, I also support staff's recommendation and I also support us doing whatever we can to help minimize the impacts on our business community. Um, all the things that have been shared tonight, I agree with about the timing of year and, and the concerns and the just uh, businesses needing time to prepare for this as well. Um, I've had the opportunity to meet with several business owners um, over the past few weeks about this and Councilmember Curtis shared some of the great ideas that I've also heard. One other one that I didn't see in the memo and I haven't heard yet, to, um, yet from council tonight, but we heard from Katja earlier is really to help promote the businesses that will be most impacted by this by having banners and signage that says, you know, hey, these businesses are open down here, go check them out. Anything that we can do to help um, raise awareness and, and help promote the businesses that will be impacted. Uh, I, let's do that, please. Thank you. Councilmember Nixon. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, well, I also support the staff recommendation and I support the uh, ideas that my colleagues have shared already. Uh, I especially like the idea of having a, an ongoing engagement with the business community. Um, we can call it a task force, whatever, whatever it's called, um, having a, a place where people can talk about concerns that continues throughout the duration of the project so that, uh, that they have a forum where, where they can be heard. Um, but the, the main concern I have is, is how we ended up having to delay this because of Puget Sound Energy. And what are we doing to hold PSE accountable for, this isn't the only project that they have caused delays on in the city. Um, can we um, find out from them why uh, they've been introducing delays in our projects fairly frequently? And figure out how to fix that, even if it just means, you know, we get them to commit to having more accurate estimates. Um, we may not be able to get them to actually speed things up, but we can't deal with them estimating the time it's gonna take them to do something and then failing to get it done. Yeah, the short answer is we are doing that. So Julie Underwood has convened a series of meetings with uh, PSE at, and their high-level staff on a lot of Kirkland projects. Um, in PSE's defense, just similar to what you heard from Metro, the issue is they can't get the staff to do the work, and they're highly technical staff who have options, and so like everybody else, they're really struggling. So they have the best possible estimates of their time and schedule, and then they lose people. So it's not that they don't want to do it, it's that they're having a hard time as well. So, but we have definitely had improvements since uh, she scheduled the meetings, and I think we're getting a good focus by PSC on the projects in Kirkland now, but that's that's essentially what happened. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Pascal. Thank you, Madam Mayor. So just a couple questions, and then I'll kind of make my statements, and this is to, to Craig, I guess. Um, has, when, when you reached out to the business community uh, over the last uh, few months, did you, did you also pose a question about would they prefer a full closure or partial closure? Did we receive any feedback on that? Thank you, Councilmember Pascal, for the question. Um, as far as posing the question of preference of closure, I do not believe we did that 
um, due to the decision that was made in the previous council meeting that uh, chose the eight week full closure to minimize the amount of impact during that work time. Okay. And then, and then also has this updated, did, did you present this updated schedule to, to, to the members you, you talked with? And what was the feedback? Because it, it seems like it's you know, also um, impacting a critical time as well. Uh, we have not presented it yet. We were waiting until after the meeting to see if the, the, the proposed schedule was approved by council. Well, I guess I guess I wanted to speak to. Um, I mean, I'm I'm all for minimizing impacts to the community and the businesses, uh, and and trying to mitigate those in, in any way that's that's reasonable and supportive. Uh, I do want to kind of talk about the process a little bit that that we've kind of gone through. Uh, I really feel like there's maybe some lessons learned on how we engage uh, with our community and businesses when we do that. And should that be a little bit earlier before we make a decision about the type of closure strategy? For me, as a council member, I, I would certainly like to hear a little bit about the impacts they face, what they think of you know the optimal strategy, um, and then what those mitigation concerns are, so that when when, a, when when the council makes a decision on what that construction strategy is, that we have that information uh, to make a more informed decision. And so that and. You know, I raised I raised this back whenever we talked about this before. Was I was a little uncomfortable, you know, making a recommendation on a a full closure or partial closure timeline and things like that without at least having some of that information and then going to the community with basically here's the decision. Um, what do you think about it? Um, I don't know. That's just not the way that I I, I would like us to be doing things. I think there's a better way of doing that. Um, so that's just that's it's kind of water under the bridge uh, at this point, unfortunately. But I think there are other projects that are coming before us that I'd like us to learn from this and see if there's there, there's ways to improve that. Uh, my my concern with the full closure in the schedule is that there's there's high risk here. Uh, this area of the city is is an area that is was along the waterfront before the lake was was lowered. Uh, we don't know what's underneath. That intersection, there's probably a lot of interesting artifacts that we're going to be uh, unearthing, and some of that could really drive the schedule, and it could uh, delay it, uh, unfortunately, to where the partial, where a full closure becomes eight weeks to ten weeks to twelve weeks. And why do I fear fear that? It's because it's happened on other construction projects across the city. It's happened along Juanita Drive when we were putting in the stormwater improvements four years ago. It happened along 100th Avenue when we were putting in the, the creek crossing um, two years ago. And it happened this year along 132nd Street uh, where we've had to extend closures along that corridor. So these things happen. It comes with construction. Um, there's, there's a certain amount of risk and uncertainty. And my fear is that, is that a full closure could be a lot longer than, than we think. And how do we mitigate that and how do we prevent that? And do everything we can. I, I just would I think it would be hel helpful to kind of hear a little bit more about our strategy. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to leap in on this one um, because it also happened when we did Park Lane. Um, 
I wonder if there is any way that we can somehow scope out what is under there, either with, you know, cameras in the existing lines, um, but to do some kind of, of research to give us a sense of what Councilmember Pasco is talking about. Because um, I'm really worried about this project, and I have been from the very beginning. I used to be a member of this business community until a month ago. So um, it, it's a scary project. I, I know that um, a huge project at some point in time is going to be the Marina Park parking lot. Uh, and I can tell you what we will find under the Marina Park parking lot because there are no pipes that go through. Um, as every business that lives along the parking lot in Marina Park is, is well aware, um, yeah, it's going to be huge. So everything we can do to mitigate the impact on the businesses, you know, I'm sorry, folks, it's an old downtown. Um, we all live in fire traps um, and, you know, that need to be replaced, but we don't have the... the Wherewithal, we'd have to go up in order to replace all those buildings. So um, change does need to happen, but we do need to pay attention to the issues that you have raised, and we are paying attention to it loud and clear. Um, uh, and you continue to let us know what we can do to help you through this, because this is going to be a painful process. And I support the staff recommendation. With that, I think you guys can go out and play in the sun, <laughs> and we will move on. Okay, just uh, so just for those of you who are wondering that the action taken is to agree with it. There's no there's no actual vote that has to take place. They would actually tell us not to do it if they wanted to. So, um, and I also want to know uh, mention we've taken very good notes, and this does give us time to come back to council and to the community with discussion options about how to proceed going into next year. So, so. We'll be in touch with all of you and, and be checking in with the council as we get closer to this. You know, City Manager, I wonder, we've talked in terms of potentially um, broadening to a town hall kind of forum for further discussion with regard to Park Lane. Wouldn't this be an appropriate time to in incorporate that as well? Maybe. Uh, and the only reason I say that is because there's a lot of things in the Park Lane study, and there's <clears throat> related but not necessarily the same things in this as well. But I think we give us some time to talk about that and talk with the community about that. I mean, they're clearly related and impact a lot of the same people, so but they're not exactly the same. Right. Okay. Well, thanks for thinking about that. Okay. Bye, guys. <laughs> I won't be offended if you're Okay, this takes us to item B, the Houghton Village Shopping Center thank you, Craig. feedback report. And thank you for do doing that. All right, so coming back to uh, the original, this is a check-in on the Houghton Village Shopping Center. This is the community feedback report. It's going to be done by our Deputy City Manager, Jim Lopez. Just need a second here to get the presentation up. Um, we're looking for council comments and feedback and then uh, any insights on the next steps that we're going to propose. Just for council note, we need to remember to do that mm -hmm. um, when, when we, we have a, full when we have a single yeah, issue uh, yeah, option. Right. What's that? We need to, to do, uh, I asked Kelly to, to make that motion. Yeah. yeah. To do it earlier, is that yeah. what you mean? Okay. Yeah. 
Welcome, Jim. Good evening, Madam Mayor, Deputy Mayor and Council. It's uh, my privilege to be for you, before you tonight with our new streamlined podium. I'm here to talk about the future of Houghton Village, but I will take ish, uh, questions on tax incremental financing. <laughs> so thank you. Um, <clears throat> this is the uh, scheduled update on the future of Houghton Village preliminary outreach that we've done, uh, that the council has asked us to do. As you know and the community may be aware, the city purchased this Houghton Village Shopping Center using a three-year interfund loan to acquire the property with the intent to, to find a development partner and a long-term financing plan by the time the interfund loan comes due in 2025. The deal came to us serendipitously. We weren't looking for it, but it happened. And given the um, uh, significant need for public spaces in our community, the city uh, took the opportunity to be uh, a partner by purchasing the property. Now, this is the first round of multi-level public engagement. There is a really comprehensive website uh, in this link, behind this link, that anyone in the community would like to know the history, FAQs, a lot of the documents that we've been using to purchase the property, a lot of the um, timeline stuff is right on this link, and I urge anyone from the community to go there and to review that. You will see on that site this timeline, which started back in January, when the City Council authorized the purchase of the property. We closed on it in May of 22, and we're in May of 23, 23 now. That's when the clock started on the Interfund loan, so we have three years from then. Uh, in June, uh, staff uh, directed was directed to solicit feedback, and um, I'm sorry, in February, we began our outreach uh, to the community for input, and we promised to be back in April um, and I, that, this is that meeting now, and I'm gonna talk about the March 6th um, community event and the events that we've done between March and April. The short answer to our recommendation tonight is that we keep the uh, community engagement ongoing through to the fall. And we'll talk about what that second round of engagement might look like. So what were the objectives of the engagement? It's really good to stay grounded in the core objectives of, as to why the council asked us to go out, why you asked the staff to go out. First and foremost, context is critical here. It, it, it was actually to inform the community of the council's intention to use the property to support a variety of public, potential public purposes. That's the context by which we're here. That's why the city purchased the property, was to explore how the city could rise to the moment uh, and address gaps in affordable housing, and we'll talk a little bit about how we've communicated that, school space, partnerships with our schools, nonprofit program space, arts and cultural space, and city recreational program space. The market hasn't quite captured this, the private market hasn't quite captured these interests, and the purpose of the city's purchase of the property was to play a role in creating more of these things. Now importantly, we got out early in this engagement process to also let the community know, and this was all in your resolution 5543, that there was not an intention to 
uh, create another permanent supportive housing facility. There had been questions about what the intention of the purchase was going to be. And staff uh, took this opportunity to make that communication. Now, if that's intention number one, intention number two was to educate the community on how the future uses of the property are regulated, because there is a lot already on the books with respect to development in the Houghton Village Shopping Center. There is, uh, there is the Everest neighborhood plan, and there is a contemplated master planning process there that actually contemplates building up in higher uh, levels for the property. And all of that is done, it exists, all the work has been done. So part of the engagement process was to let the community know about all that and answer questions about it and how the council might um, be working off of those documents. And then, of course, equally as important was to solicit direct community, community feedback on how the city can best achieve the public benefits as articulated by the council in the resolution while also creating a thriving, walkable, and sustainable retail development. And this is where, like, the lion's share of the community feedback comes from, where we ask the community how you would like us to move forward. So let's talk briefly about the process. Well, as is the case with these types of engagements, we have a comprehensive landing page. I've talked about that. It talks about the timeline, the documents, FAQ, and the staff information, how to contact us for that. We also had a community forum right here in this room, and um, I believe the entire council was here. Um, uh, 67 overall attendees, virtual and in person. It's, this hybrid form of town hall is really enhancing, I think, participation. The numbers are up there. And there was a mix of residents, business owners, community leaders, and nonprofit operators. It was a very robust conversation. We had two neighborhood association meetings. We focused in this early round on those neighborhoods that are closest to the development. Central Houghton was an in-person meeting. I think there were over 50 members in attendance. It was well, well attended. And Everest was virtual. We had 12 community members in attendance there, which were good numbers. We also had two small group meetings, really good attendance, on March 14th and March 27th, where we got a chance to have uh, more detailed conversations about hopes and aspirations for the, for the uh, property development. And uh, a lot of the same people came to those meetings, but we did get a chance to talk about it in more detail. We did talk about, we did talk with administrators from the Lakeview Elementary School, and uh, that's the school closest to the property. We met with the principal and the vice principal. We got some good insight. We have our Kirkland feedback, which the council has received. We've got several um, communications from the community in this first round. And we also have a community survey, which was done by the Central Houghton Neighborhood Association. This is not a city document. It was crafted, created by the Central Houghton Neighborhood, and they sent us to it. And we thought, as part of the council packet, it would be helpful for you to read the survey, so we included the data in it. It, it does not appear to be a um, representative sample survey. I think it was a survey that was sent out to... We, we could uh, do a little more detail as to who received it, but it looks like it was a advertised survey. So the feedback, um, um, in no order of priority, not surprisingly, folks did ask about building height. I think, generally speaking, folks wanted to know about the process. And I think, again, this is a summary. We've put as much as the raw data as we could in the packet. 
there was some concern about how high the buildings would go. People do understand that it is in the plans to go up to the five stories. There was at least one comment about whether or not the council intended to go higher than the plan, um, and I think that, that might be something we talk about. There was conversations about the type of affordable housing. This was very interesting, and the conversations were good. They, they were um, very inquisitive about AMI, like how does affordable housing work? You know, what is, well, how does the city um, categorize affordable housing? We talked, and we, we actually published the tables, the arch tables, we published that in our materials. Um, we talked mostly about the notion of workforce housing, uh, the idea that we're looking, the council's looking, uh, clearly we drew the distinction as articulated on permanent supportive housing, but we, we, we talked about the need to try to bridge the gap for those people that work in the city to live in the city in creative ways using some of the businesses in the local community that might, this type of housing might be available to. There was a lot of interesting conversations about placemaking and, and nice aesthetics. Now, I know the council knows this, but everybody loves the salt and straw area in the, the home village. Uh, and this, the, you know, the idea that you could create um, a place where the community would want to go to and just sit and hang out with your kids or the adults. And a lot of conversations kind of evolved into the actual architecture of the building. Now that we're one of the owners, how they wanted the building to look nice and to be uh, aesthetically pleasing. There was a lot of talk about public space focusing on children before school, after school, and seniors. Uh, a public space that would be kind of multi-generational and multi-purpose. Like, can we create a public space around those communities? There were several groups, I think, that <clears throat> uh, nonprofit groups that were interested in in that conversation and it's interesting because if you look into the details of the survey from the central houghton neighborhood you see a ton of kids do something for children do something for groups but you also see that on the it's like po there's like polarity to it there was a lot of don't do that too in, the, in their survey but we got a lot of multi-generational please make it acceptable and and do some interesting things for for kids, youth, and seniors. There was, of course, attractive retail about this. I think people mentioned pizza a lot. <laughs> um, but the idea that part of the development would be attractive retail, it is a really great spot. That, that whole Houghton shopping area is, uh, is attractive retail. They would like it to be consistent with that. I think um, Certainly in our outreach, traffic concerns was one of the priority items. Whatever the council were to decide, there is the 6th Street traffic report. We certainly presented that and we made a, the community aware of it. But it's hard to not emphasize enough uh, the traffic concerns were an issue. And I think you actually see this in the Houghton survey, if you drill down in the details of it, where the things that they're most worried about, this was probably the top one. I may have that wrong, but I do think this was up there, if not the number one, most most noted one. Uh, the idea to make it pedestrian friendly, and here, you know, there's safety concerns generally, parking, part of traffic, pedestrian friendly, part of this, walkable, um, interesting um, 
to the extent we can influence the landscape around the property. And school attendance projections, um, they wanted to make sure that the, the partnership or relationship with the schools and the school districts was an important part of our thinking. We're gonna make a big deal of that in the next round of our engagement. That's one of our, one of our ideas. So um, I kind of leave the Central Houghton Neighborhood Survey uh, to the council. We did put all the details in it. Um, I, you know, a, a kind of a back of the envelope summary would be, and, and focusing on, um, I think the desirable elements were around kids and, and aesthetics and making sure that it was a robust area. I think traffic, uh, several pe people mentioned crime and safety as just a general item. Uh, maybe we didn't get the word out enough, but a lot of people did say housing for the homeless, and we, we didn't, maybe we didn't emphasize that enough. I thought we did. Um, and building height, I think that was another one that came up a lot in the Central Houghton neighborhood um, survey. So let's talk about next steps. Well, first, um, Deputy City Manager Goldberg is here. As you know, we have purchased for the near-term use, um, the prop we've, we we are we're going to allocate over seven hundred thousand dollars for to use the piece the former PCC space for Studio East. Um, they were the only organization to respond to our proposal. They will cover the operation and maintenance while we occupy the space, and we have the funding sources listed here. I think this is serendipitous as well because I think there was a lot of energy to activate the space and there was a lot of energy to make sure we're addressing youth and how we're gonna make it interesting and active for families. And I think this near-term solution is, meets that bill. Um, uh, our ask tonight, uh, or our update tonight, will really focus on the end of the timeline in the square, which is to have another phase of outreach, which I think was the council's intention uh, to really spend some time with the commercial property owners in the area and really talk to them about uh, hopes, uh, aspirations, challenges, to spend some time with the Lake Washington School District, to really sit down and talk to them about options and gaps and what they might be needing, including Northwest University, which is in that area, um, business developers, um, and just take more time to follow up on some of the key themes that we learned in the initial outreach. So that would be our hope to get direction from the council tonight. And um, yeah, we're available to answer questions. Great. Anybody want to start? Councilmember Curtis. Thank you, Jim. Um, so this feedback is great. I love that we are going to continue our outreach. When I, you were sitting there talking, I'm like, it's really at the crossroads of Houghton, Everest, Moss Bay, and Lakeview. Mm -hmm. And um, and I'd like, oh, that could be the new name of it, the crossroads. Um, <laughs> and then there's an album. Okay, <laughs> time for Kelly to take a break. Um, so I think that we we need to maintain the focus that this property is for the entire city, not just one or two neighborhoods. So I love that you're going to continue the outreach. I would encourage um, to also when you're reaching out to talk to there's a multifamily developments along there to maybe do some outreach into those communities you know it's a broken record we want to get as many diverse uh, stakeholders involved in these conversations as possible um, 
I like the idea of public space and I liken it to the conversations we were having about the station area plan and how we wanted to create public plazas and gathering spaces. Um, love to have a green roof, just gonna throw it out there because I've always gotta say it. Um, oh, when we talk about affordable housing, it's so clear to us in our mind what that is, but we, you, I mean, you learned it. You're starting to explain yeah. AMI. We need to start talking about affordable housing and who, who are we housing? And I love yeah. that you started talking about workforce housing. Mm -hmm. These are your grocery store workers mm -hmm. and these are the people that cut your hair and all of that. I think that that's the way we need to talk about it. Um, traffic is, is an issue and I'm just gonna go on record. I am waiting for when I get caught with that Lakeview school camera because I spend a lot of time in that area and you head down the hill and there that camera is. So I do think we need to look into that. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm leading up to my big reach, my big ask. It, it's, it's not adjacent to the CKC, but it's close to the CKC. And since we have time, I would love to explore how we could create a connection from this property to the CKC, oh. and that would require, I know you guys are gonna love me, it would require some sort of easement through pneumatic tube or the adjacent property, but we can try, we can ask. Yep. So um, so that's something, since we have time, I'd like to explore too. Okay. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Deputy Arnold. Thank you, Madam Mayor, and thank you, Jim, for the outreach and also sharing the information from the Central Houghton Neighborhood Association. From their survey, though, it does uh, show that we've got more work to do. There was a lot of um, uh, concerns and objections, even to three, four, or five-story buildings that are allowed today. Yeah. We are not changing. So I think we need to continue to tell the story, regardless if it's a city partnership building this building or a private developer. This is the framework that exists today within the Houghton Everest Neighborhood Center planning effort that we did years ago, and our intention is to work within that effort. It's talk, and the placemaking that people are interested in, the safety investments, those are things that we want to do. Part of the incentive of the five-story buildings under a master plan and consolidating the properties were to provide an incentive to make that kind of place, because when you consolidate, when you have a master plan process and you can talk about driveway consolidation and some of the pedestrian improvements, uh, a better mid-block crossing, uh, uh, things like that, that all were part of that original mm -hmm. neighborhood discussion. And I think we just need to continually remind people that we've had this conversation before and we're gonna move forward consistent with that previous conversation. As you noted, Jim, there's still confusion on the housing and homeless that came out in a lot of the verbatim comments within the survey that Central Houghton put out. So I yep. think we need to, I mean, agree. You, you clearly consider it settled policy because that's what council's adopted, right. but we need to continually remind folks that we really are looking about attainable workforce housing uh, through a partnership. Finally, I would note, I love that people are recognizing the village at Total Mike as an example of some placemaking. Mm -hmm. I would note that that happens because we've got restaurant and retail and housing and five plus stories of development. Uh, there has not been any development in um, 
my memory of 10 years being on the council and five years on the planning commission before that, that we had a three-story new building uh, happened. It just, to get the places that we're talking about, the trade-off is saying you have to build housing, so you've got the customers to support the businesses. And I think we need to continue to say that's why um, we have this structure that says four-story buildings are allowed, and the five-story is the incentive to consolidate. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, thank you, Deputy City Manager, for this great presentation and, and leading this work with the community. Um, it's never easy to do these, these public engagement processes, but you always do it so well. So thank you for that. Um, it's impressive how many folks are already engaged. Mm. And to um, Councilman Pascal's comments earlier about engaging people early and often, um, I think this is a great example of how we're doing that. And so I think that's wonderful that we're engaging so many stakeholders early on in this process. I would add some stakeholders. I like the end more that you have on there. Yep. Um, I wouldn't just reach out to you know commercial property owners and business owners. I would reach out to the workers in, in nearby businesses to really think about what, what they would like to see there, because that's going to be where they could potentially be living. It could be where they potentially go get lunch. It could be, you know, in their neighborhood that they're living, oftentimes more than folks who live or own a home in the area, right? And so, and could be uh, future potential residents as well. So let's keep that in mind. Um, you, I would also love to reach out to human services providers. We know that we have some that are really small that need physical space. And so really figuring out how we can work with them, how we can um, partner and help make that happen so that the organizations that are doing good work in our community can continue to exist and that we can find a way to create space for some of those. Um, recommend not just reaching out to the school district and the, and the school there, but the PTAs and the families at the oh, yeah. school as well. I would really focus on that. Um, and thinking about the Juanita Village feedback I think it's great that it's being used as a positive example, but there are also some lessons learned there. I think of you know our presentation earlier tonight with transit um, and how just the struggles we're having there with uh, not having those conversations or not really making sure we could accommodate transit to make sure that we, uh, that we do that well. Um, also thinking about housing, I really see this as an opportunity to make it like you alluded to earlier, um, to do what the market can't do or isn't doing, right? And to really encourage that. So I really want to have that lens with this. Um, you know, we we talk about the zero to 30% AMI as being permanent supportive housing, and it's not all permanent supportive housing. Our housing needs that we're going to be, that are going to be coming to us soon from King County mm -hmm. are going to be split at the zero to 30% AMI for permanent supportive housing and just affordable housing at that level. And I would love to see a mixture of different AMIs and projects such as this, um, so that you have folks from different socioeconomic backgrounds together in the same facility, being neighbors um, in the same community. So let's consider that and continue to have that lens of how we can do the most good for what um, the biggest gap is that is likely to not be addressed by the market. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Councilmember Nixon. Um, thank you, Madam Mayor. And uh, thanks, Jim. By the way, you buff up really nice. <laughs> um, I, I want to understand where we're going. Um, and it's, it's absolutely great and essential to continue the public engagement. Um, but we all know we have two years until the interfund loan is due. Um, 
So when do we say, okay, the brainstorming phase is done, let's start putting ideas on paper and uh, condensing it down and coming up with something that can go in an RFP so we can get proposals from partners. Right. Um, are we going to hire a consultant to do that? How much is that going to cost? Those kind of things. Um, or do we have a plan to refinance the Interfund loan so that we can go more than two years if that's what it's going to take? Mm -hmm. So I, what comments do you have about the timeline from here going forward? So my current intent would be that those will be the kind of things that we'd be bringing back in the October uh, for preliminary discussion. Uh, and there's still a variety of zigs and zags that could happen. So just as an example, um, if the legislature had passed a real estate excise tax, as an example, and then they may take up again. Um, in Kirkland, that um, increment would have generated enough in two years to pay off the loan, right? So that's one option that could be, like, maximize your flexibility. Um, the other thing that we're going to hear from the partners we're talking to, because now we're going to be talking to the owners on both sides, we're going to be talking to Northwest University, we'll start to hear is there actually interest in partnership. So we'll have a lot more about what kinds of partners we could have and what might be possible um, in the fall, and that would then give the council a little bit more sense of direction. So uh, we do need some more specificity, and it's coming. And then I think the other opportunity is we have the comprehensive plan update process, too. So this kind of fits into that as well in 23-24. So a lot more coming in the fall is the intent. Great. Is that it? Okay. Councilmember Black. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, thank you, Deputy City Manager. Um, again, just so much work uh, that has been gone into this, and I really appreciate it. A um, couple comments and then maybe uh, one question. And then maybe I'll start with my question, and I, I probably wish we had Director Weinstein here from Planning and Building for this question, but, oh, maybe we do. <laughs> um, it has to do with the master... Well, let me make... Actually, I have a comment leading to this question. So there's... Suffice it to say that I live in this. I live in an adjacent neighborhood, which is the Central Houghton neighborhood. I frequent the shopping in that area. Um, a lot of the business owners are people I regularly uh, frequent, and there's just a ton of misinformation um, with among my neighbors, among business owners. Um, don't know about landowners themselves because I don't interface with the landowners, but. Um, just a lot of misunderstanding about what the master plan process would look like, a lot of misunderstanding about um, why the city purchased this property, um, whether it's for just a benefit for the local neighborhood or, or meant to be a benefit for the people of the entire city of Kirkland, um, believing that the city is going to be um, building and owning uh, a building on that property, and I want to make sure we're clear about what our plans are to find a developer. Uh, that's going to um, obviously um, develop, a, you know, with respect to a vision that the city has, but ultimately the city is not going to be, um, you know, building a, a five-story building itself. Um, so anyway, I, I said all that, actually, probably the, the most uh, important conclusion from that is just how important the continued engagement is, okay. um, which has already been said, so I won't I won't dwell on that much longer, but when it comes, one piece of misinformation that's out there is about this master plan process and about whether the only way the master plan process can proceed is for these two properties to be joined in ownership versus two separate property owners joining together in a master plan process. Right. And I want to make sure I understand that and, and our community understands that. Is Adam, do you want to take that? 
Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Councilmember Black. That's exactly right. I'll and I'll read the um, the section from the Everest Neighborhood Plan that talks about that. It says that one of the provisions of um, developing a master plan um, is that there needs to be a consolidation of the property on the northwest corner of Northeast 68th Street and Sixth Street South, and property or properties west of the corner property. So again, the keywords there, as you said, Councilmember Black, are not that there is unified ownership, just consolidation of those two properties in the master plan, meaning that the master plan covers both both of the properties. Okay. The Hutton Village site and the site to the east. Great. So just one area of misunderstanding, something else we can help um, educate when, we, when we're talking to uh, folks. Um, when um, uh, Deputy City Manager, you and I have talked before about the importance of talking to workers. I really appreciate Councilmember Falcone raising that point. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that I would like to s sort of add a little bit of a footnote onto that or just enhance it a little bit. Uh, yes, talk, we want to be talking to workers. When we're, anytime we're talking to business owners who have workers who work in that space, I would like us to be um, asking the business owners about the challenges they have associated with yeah. maintaining their workforce and, and helping understand how whatever vision we might have at the Houghton Village Plaza might actually benefit, even though um, some business owners may have some concerns, for example, let's say traffic, mm -hmm. um, there might be some real benefits. Um, and so if we can make sure we understand what the concerns are, what the, uh, but also um, find out what their concern, you know, what the issues are with their workforce. Uh, and maintaining workforce and what it would mean to have workforce housing in the in the area. So I would just add that. Um, and that is sufficient. I, I didn't hear anything from my council members uh, this evening on this issue that I didn't agree with. So I appreciate everybody's comments. Thanks. Thank you. Okay. I think we've we've heard it all. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I think you're doing a great job. Thank you. Uh, stay, and I would agree, I think we're generally in consensus with, with the direction we're going. I do believe that workforce housing is going to be a hard sell, um, but I also believe that it is such an important element of this. Uh, as Deputy Mayor pointed out, um, to be able to create a success like we have at um, the Totem Lake Village um, people are going to have to understand that you have to build yeah. the whole system. Anyway, so thank you for Thank this. you, Mayor. And with that, we are going to take a 15-minute break and uh, be back and finish this agenda. Somebody tell All me right, what time you. it is. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We are back from a 15-minute break, and we are at our business agenda, item number uh, C, discussion of pedestrian infrastructure projects planned for the 124th Avenue Northeast Corridor between 85th and 116th Street. Yeah. City Manager. Okay, thank you, Madam Mayor. This is a very brief presentation, and we're just looking for council action on a motion, and here to give you the briefing is our Public Works Director, Julie Underwood. Good evening, Council. You may recall that Councilmember Pascal asked for 
um, really uh, more information about the 124th Avenue Northeast Corridor. And so in your packet is a memo that outlines um, uh, both some public and private investments. As noted, the public investment investments are estimated at um, $54 million in unfunded capital needs. And then there are currently seven private development projects in the queue. Um, recall that, well, I don't know if you recall this, there was a lot in your 23-24 um, budget uh, proposal, but the Public Works Department included a service package, 23S014, um, to fund what we're calling opportunities, uh, which are presented oftentimes by the private development community to address adjacent gaps. Um, however, typically with permanent improvements. Um, the proposal before you this evening is to authorize the opportunity fund to include some flexibility for interim measures that could be used across the entire city. And so um, before you is a potential motion for you to consider. Um, and then I'll, I'll just pause there and see if you have any questions. Councilmember Pascal. Well, I'd, I'd like to make the motion to, oh, I'll read this, I guess. I move that the use of the approved service package 23SO14 be expanded to allow for interim pedestrian improvements to fill sidewalk gaps in conjunction with private developments within the city when determined to be appropriate by public works. Second. It's been moved by Councilmember Pascal, seconded by Councilmember Falcone. You want to speak to your motion? Sure. I, Julie and team, thank you for, for coming back uh, quickly with uh, options on how to uh, provide flexibility to implement interim types of improvements um, in partnership with should I still speak is it being recorded <clears throat> well it, it's not the mic I don't believe no no sound all chamber sound has been lost I've heard that Meaning on the on the, on the mm -hmm. in the in the virtual audience okay. Zoom audience. Hey, do you have someone that can confirm that it's still? Maybe Adams out there still. <laughs> I'm. How did you find? I'm, out? I'm messaging with Diana. Okay. We can hear out here. Thank you. Oh, I can okay. hear you. All right, we're back. We good. Mm -hmm. All right. <clears throat> Where was I? Diana uh, says just me then. Um, anyways, it's a, a good idea, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I did want to also touch on something else um, to just uh, while I have the mic. I did attend the, the North Rose Hill neighborhood meeting last night and, and Kimberly was there too and she, she did a great job in responding to a lot of the questions and, and concerns that were raised. Uh, that, however, part of the conversation really did start to focus on these these gaps in the pedestrian system where uh, development has either been anticipated or has started, then stopped, and then nothing has kind of happened. And you know, I think we're well aware of this, especially for the west side of 124th Avenue, where 
we had anticipated several of those gaps being completed at similar at the same time that we were completing the rest of the sidewalks, right? But several of those gaps still exist, as I think you pointed out in this memo. The question really was around, are there ways that we, for, for those corridors where we've already identified the corridor as a high priority pedestrian, um, where there's high priority pedestrian gaps that exist, like we have done in the active transportation plan, is there some way to incentivize landowners in that situation that are planning to develop to um, clear a portion of their land to add gravel to to provide some some area to to walk on an interim basis where the city doesn't have to do it but the landowner can do it and then they get some type of credit against their impact fee or some other development fee to incentivize that to happen um, in locations where where we've identified a need a high priority need um, that would be something I'd it'd be really interesting to explore how we could incentivize that not just maybe an interim but also on a permanent basis where they can come in and install the sidewalk a little bit earlier than they had planned. Um, and you know, I don't think they're gonna wanna do that just because I think that we would have to somehow incentivize that from to, to occur somehow. And I'm wondering if that's something that we can also uh, look at. We definitely can. And I, I will say this, um, John Burkhalter, Development Services Manager, did have an opportunity to reach out to Merritt Homes and um, they are very, very cooperative and willing to work with us. And um, obviously, we wanted to make sure he was aware of this memo, and you know that we <laughs> didn't want him to be surprised. But no, they're they're very interested. And I will say, I mean, I, I think most property owners out there that are interested in developing in our community want to do a good job. They want to partner with us and and do that. So um, I would say. Uh, kind of let's lean on development services to do what they can to kind of expedite that and speed that along. Probably the biggest incentive is permitting process and helping them with that and making sure that the process um, addresses all their needs. So we can also work with planning and building yeah. on that too. Yeah, I think that would, that, that would, yeah. sounds great. I mean, I think I would want it to be something more like a formalized kind of policy or something, um, that's what I would, would like to kind of see if there's something that could be explored, incentivize that uh, somehow, you know, rather than just, hey, would you do it, you know, what can you do? I, th I think the one-offs are going to be kind of difficult, but if, if we can, staff is going to turn over, we're going to have new staff, we're going to have new council in the future, so how can we make this more of a, of, of a process? <clears throat> yeah, maybe it, it, we attach it somehow to the um, safe routes dis discussion or just safe routes in, in general. Yeah, or just come back when you're coming back with a legislative request. <clears throat> yeah, no, we can certainly look into that. And I think I highlight there's there's also some complications with yeah. it, right? Because there's, mm -hmm. there's stormwater things and other things as well. But nevertheless, I think the idea of looking at how can we make sure that there's ways that they can look at yeah, it. Yeah, if, if there is a way. Yeah, so, yeah. so I definitely took notes on that. We'll make sure we look into that. Great. Okay, the question is on the motion moved by Councilmember Pascal, seconded by Councilmember Falcone to approve the use of the approved service package um, to expand, that it be expanded to allow for interim 
pedestrian improvements to fill sidewalk gaps in conjunction with private developments within the city when determined to be appropriate by public works. Um, all those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries unanimously. That takes us <clears throat> to item E, the Juanita Drive Multimodal Safety Project Update and Scope Modification Request. City Manager. Okay, thank you. So I wanted to check in on the Winita Drive project and actually talk about separating one of the projects into a separate scope. And here to give you that briefing is our senior project engineer, Laura Drake. Great. Thank you, Mr. City Manager. And good evening, Madam Mayor, Deputy Mayor, and Council. Um, yes, I'm here to discuss the Juanita Drive Multimodal Intersection and Safety Improvements Project with you this evening. We'll touch really briefly on project background and status, give you an update on our budget, talk about our opportunity at Northeast 112th Street and 80th Avenue Northeast, and wrap up with the schedule and next steps. This project started, uh, it was identified with the Juanita Drive Corridor Study. We've already completed many of those improvements as part of the Quick Wins Project. And this project is scoped to address um, seven of those project sites as identified in the Corridor Study. Our scope is to provide continuous pedestrian and buffered bike lanes between 132nd Street down to 79th Way on the east side of Juanita Drive adding a new rapid flashing beacon enhanced crossing at Northeast 124th Street, as well as intersection improvements at Northeast 132nd Street, Northeast 128th Street, and um, the, the intersection we'll talk a little bit more about in a couple slides, the Northeast 112th Street and 80th Avenue Northeast intersection. Currently, we're at a 90% design level. We've partnered with North Shore Utility District to achieve some of their scope at they're funding that um, to, to get in and get their work completed as part of our project. Um, we are doing pretty good on the right-of-way acquisition. We have 10 complete and four are still ongoing, three of which are very close to wrapping up. And we've been doing um, ongoing public outreach on this project. Currently, we are funded at just over $11.6 million, but we are expecting all of this scope through construction to cost just over $13.5 million, which would leave us at a shortfall of $1.9 million. The intersection uh, where Juanita Drive meets Northeast 112th Street and 80th Street, it's sort of a funky five-legged intersection today. Our improvements uh, would help with vehicle access as well as improving safety. Um, one of the property negotiations, the one that could definitely benefit for some more time before we take the next step to condemnation, is at this intersection. Also, it's worth noting that the work here at this intersection does add two months to the overall construction timeline. Of course, we'd expect a contractor to work here and elsewhere on the corridor at the same time, but the level of work here is pretty significant. If we were to transfer the work at this intersection to a proposed new CIP project, it would allow us that extra time for wrapping up property acquisition. It also allows the rest of the project to move forward uh, more quickly, not just because we're saving a little bit of time in construction, but also because we're just ready to, to finish up and get out to bid later this year. 
Um, and it would also address the projected shortfall for this project. Um, I've been at council with you a few times on this project. Um, right now, we are wrapping up design, looking to get out to bid later this year. Construction could begin early next year. Um, and we're looking at about a 12-month construction period. Our next steps would be to coordinate, uh, continue our coordination with North Shore Utility District, of course, continue public outreach. Um, as I mentioned, we're ready to wrap up our design, our right-of-way, get out to bid this fall so we can start construction early next year. Are there any questions? Uh, Deputy Mayor Arnold. Thank you, Madam Mayor, and thank you, Laura, for the presentation. Uh, if we were to split this into a separate uh, CIP project, when do you anticipate coming back to us with details on the, that, that new project, or, or does that just become something that's unfunded? It would appear in the CIP update, um, along with a funding plan for that. Very good. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Um, hold on. Uh, Councilmember Pascal. I just move that we uh, authorize the transfer of the money or to a new, not money, I guess, transfer this to a new CIP project, 80th, 112th Street. And it's been moved by Councilmember Pascal, seconded by Councilmember Falcone to separate the project. Yeah, to separate. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, any discussion? I was just going to say that. Uh, one thing I didn't mention, and it was kind of—it's kind of cool to see the agenda this this week. Is there's a lot of public works transportation, but this week is National Transportation Week, and next week is American Public Works Week. Uh, so two two big weeks in the civil engineering uh, profession. <laughs> uh, so it's always good. I I always get a crack when people laugh about that because. And it's what, what we do, and it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, so on this one, though, the wanting to drive, I just wanted to thank uh, the team for looking at ways to kind of move things forward quicker. Uh, it, you know, it, it's a tough decision because I know there's, there's neighbors that, that want to see this, this intersection project move forward too, but, but we don't want that to delay the overall project. Um, so, and I'm hopeful that we'll find ways to fund it in the CIP update. Thank you. Any further discussion? Question is on the motion. Moved by Councilmember Pascal, seconded by Councilmember Falcone to separate or do the scope modification request as, as requested. Uh, all those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries unanimously. Takes us to item F, the 108th Avenue Northeast Transit queue jumps project. City Manager. Okay. Thank you, Madam Mayor. So we Got to update you on this. And once again, here is our senior project engineer, Laura Drake, and we're basically looking for concurrence with the recommendation to federalize this project. So, Laura. Welcome back, Laura. Great. Thank you so much. Yes, I missed you guys. Um, <laughs> no, thank you. Good evening, Madam Mayor, Deputy Mayor, and City Council. Thank you again for, for allowing me to present with you um, this time about the 108th Avenue Northeast Transit Q Jumps, phase one and phase two. Um, We'll touch very briefly on the project background and scope, uh, discuss our current funding, the ongoing coordination with King County Metro and the rapid ride. I know we heard that great presentation earlier. Um, and finally close with the proposed strategy for moving this project forward. 
In 2017, the city adopted the Sixth Street Corridor Study, which identified ongoing issues with congestion and collisions on this corridor. Um, one of the solutions proposed there was to build transit queue jumps on Northeast 68th Street and Northeast 60th Street. Um, and as a reminder for anyone who's not familiar, a transit queue jump is uh, a bus lane that allows, um, at, that's at a traffic signal that will uh, give the buses a priority phase. So in our case, it'd be for northbound buses. They can move forward um, before the rest of northbound traffic is allowed to move forward. Also in the active transportation plan, they identified um, converting the existing street level bicycle lanes into protected bicycle lanes to better serve users of all ages and abilities. And the Safer Routes to School Action Plan identified crosswalk improvements near Northeast 55th Street. This project is broken into two geographical phases. Uh, phase one is the northmost section between Northeast 62nd and 68th Street. We build a new northbound bus lane, modify this existing signal at 68th for that transit priority. Um, and we'd also add the northbound elevated protected bicycle lane here. Phase two, the southern section is between 53rd and 60th streets. Um, again, we'd be building that northbound bus lane. We'd need to build a brand new signal at 60th street. We can add in rapid flashing beacon system um, to the existing crosswalk near 55th street. And similar to phase one, we'd add that northbound elevated protected bicycle lane. Currently, we have two grants on this project. One is federal, um, and that brings us to a total funding of just over $3.5 million. That federal grant does come with federal requirements, including the uh, NEPA environmental review process, which can take some time. Um, to get this project built, we are expecting to need another $8.5 million. So we are looking at uh, future grant funds and um, some possibilities with our partnership with King County Metro and their Rapid Ride K-Line project. Um, as discussed earlier in, the, in a Metro's presentation earlier this evening, the Rapid Ride K-Line would connect um, Bellevue of, through Kirkland up to Totem Lake, providing um, better, more reliable, more frequent transit service. Because the K-Line is routed on 108th, both the K-Line and the existing transit route 255 would benefit from the queue jumps that we plan to build. The K-Line project is federally funded and it is expected to be active for use as early as 2030. This slide summarizes our delivery strategy for this project. Up at the top, we are showing this project beginning immediately in 2023. Um, we have a lengthy process to get through design, environmental permitting, coordinating with franchise utilities, including uh, PSE relocation needs. Um, that would target us to have the project complete and fully built in the year 2029. In the middle of this slide, we're showing our funding strategy. So we've already secured two grants on this project, one state and one federal, 
and we're targeting additional grants uh, for construction phase funding. And at the bottom of this slide, we're showing the K-Lines project timeline. They are already, uh, they've already begun with preliminary design efforts. And as I mentioned, they're expecting to have their project complete and operational as soon as the year 2030. So our recommended strategy moving forward is to officially federalize the project by accepting that federal grant. Um, again, we have that lengthy environmental review process, but because K-Line has already committed to building the K-Line project, um, because we already know we need grant funding, we'd like to target both state and federal funds for this project. Um, our partnership with Metro does improve our grant competitiveness, and it also unlocks the possibility that Metro could construct our project as part of their larger K-Line project if we chose. Um, and finally, we are pursuing options to have our project, the Q-Jumps, and the K-Line go through environmental review through a single federal agency, which could save us some time. Um, and some inflation-related costs. And regardless of our decision today, we are planning to come back. Um, I'm planning to come back with you next year for an update. Are there any questions? Questions, Councilmember Nixon. Uh, thanks, Madam Mayor. Am I correct? My recollection, if I'm wrong, but. Um, my recollection is that we had federalized the 100th Avenue project. And then because I think it was extremely expensive environmental mitigation costs that would have been imposed by the federal government, we decided to unfederalize it so we could get it done. Correct. Um, is that not an issue on this 100th and 8th project or? It, it is, in fact, an issue. It is still an but, issue. But the, but the difference is we had the 100th project fully funded and could give back the federal dollars and finish it. In this case, we probably can't fund this project at all without a lot of additional federal dollars. So one of the central pieces of it is to get enough to finish it, we're going to have to go back to the federal government anyway. So that was the, the key difference. But yes, those, the NEPA review that Laura was talking about, that's part of this whole process that's creating this be, these big timelines. And so... Partnering with Metro on the K-Line helps with that, but it is definitely still an issue. Do you think that the issue that it, it caused that on 100th Avenue, which if I recall was chemicals that would run off into Juanita Creek, is that not an issue? It's or is that still, also going to be an also issue. also still yes. an issue on 100th Avenue. <laughs> yeah, so the issue is the, the chemical picking off tires getting into stormwater, <clears throat> impacting fish um, viability, and sadly for pretty much every jurisdiction, that issue is out there for everybody. So the, you know, the county, the cities, everybody's facing that, and the federal government's going to have to find a way to figure that out. But yeah, so that's basically containment and treatment is going to be part of this project and probably any other project that touches roads in the future. But they haven't still come up with the, the best science and practices yet. So. Does the stormwater management for the 108th project already include what we expect that mitigation to be, or could that drive the cost up further? That's a great question for Laura. Can't answer that. Yeah, we're we're tracking that really closely. We do have some allowance for treatment. Um, the difference, I think, with this project compared with 100th Avenue is we know now that 
that this chemical is an issue and that the NEPA process is expected to be lengthy. So we built that into our schedule and we built that into our expected inflation costs for getting this built. Um, and, and as Mr. City Manager did mention, there are some opportunities with our partnership uh, through Metro to help uh, facilitate our process through the federal regulation to potentially move it a little bit faster than we would if we were building this on our own. Great, thank you. Any other questions, discussion? Okay, do we need a motion on this one? Or just? Excuse me. We don't need a motion, we just, if you, you'd have to tell us not to do it, otherwise we'll just go ahead and obligate the funds. Go for it. Then. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Sorry to make it last. That was last, right? Okay. Um, so that takes us to item number 10, our reports on Councilmember Nixon. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, this was a busy couple of weeks for a lot of us, and I'll just quickly mention a few things that some of us, or in some cases all of us, attended. Uh, on the third, there was the Congressional Art Competition reception with Representative Del Bene and uh, Councilmember Falcone and Curtis and I were there and it was, uh, I think it was the three of us. And um, amazing artwork by the students and very impressive. Um, on the fourth, of course, we had the Kirkland Initiative and I just thought that we all did a wonderful job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, we actually make a very good team when it comes to that kind of thing, so that's good. Uh, uh, well, well, as it turned out, I think <clears throat> it worked out. <laughs> it was very compelling. Yeah. Um, on the 11th uh, was the Kirkland Chamber luncheon with uh, Sam Cho, who's the president of the Port of Seattle Commission, and Councilmember Curtis was there with me. And um, it was really impressive to see everything that the Port is doing. And uh, I think, I, I don't know if we've seen those slides yet, but I think it would be really great if we could get those slides that um, Commissioner Cho showed at that luncheon and, and share it with the rest of the council. Um, also on the 11th, we had the uh, police swearing in and awards uh, ceremonies, and most of us were there for that. Uh, on the 12th, we had the Fire Academy graduation, and Deputy Mayor Arnold and I uh, represented us there. Um, how many Kirkland firefighters did we have? Ten? Ten. Wow. Yeah, it's great. And on the 15th, yesterday morning, we had the National Peace Officer Memorial Day ceremony uh, at the Kirkland Justice Center at uh, O-Dark 30. Well, it was not dark. It's <laughs> But it was uh, uh, Deputy Mayor Arnold and Councilmember Pascal and I were there for that. And... Uh, always a very moving ceremony. Um, <clears throat> but that made me think about the fact that that Peace Officer Memorial Day is always part of National Police Week, which is this week. And um, we didn't have a proclamation for that, and we have in the past. We have? For National Police Week. Okay. Previous years we have. And also next week is National EMS Week, and we have done proclamations for National EMS Week in the past, but we do not have one on the schedule. So what is our process for requesting uh, additions to the proclamation list? Because um, th these are two things that, uh, given the importance of public safety, 
<clears throat> that I think we ought to recognize National Police Week and National EMS Week. So from the council's perspective, it's this. <clears throat> you would just you know, give us the request and then we would put it through our process that comes back to the mayor and the council. I vaguely recall, we haven't done those in quite a while, but yeah, we would definitely track them down. Two or three years, yeah. yeah. Um, but I do have members of the community who contact me every yeah. year. And but for the members of the public, yeah. I think what most council members remember is we've created now the proclamation request form that you can do from the website. And so those come to the city manager's office, and then they go to the mayor and the deputy mayor during the agenda setting to talk about how they might be allocated under the new policy, whether it's going to be read live or whether it's going to be on consent or sent directly to them. So the public can access it that way, but council can do it this way, or you can always email us or call us as staff so what do you what's the preferred mechanism if i wanted to request these for next year to go just do the online that's, form that's fine i'll write it down yeah. i've wrote it down but everybody okay with doing though. those next year absolutely you know i i i'm really glad you pointed this out because i think quite frankly it's something that we should incorporate into the memorial service yesterday yeah which i was out of town for but I think the proclamation would have been appropriately read there. That's all I have. Thank you. Thanks. Council Member Black. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. And uh, thank you, Council Member Nixon. You covered actually all the event-related things I was going to mention, save one, which is an upcoming event for our uh, Kirkland seniors. <clears throat> um, so as many of you recall from the depths of COVID, uh, for the class of 2020, uh, an informal senior cruise was organized uh, for all uh, seniors uh, throughout the city of Kirkland, um, regardless of where they attend school. Um, high school seniors. Which <laughs> yes. Sorry. High school seniors graduating. Well, seniors, you know. Yeah. And I'm now a senior. Yeah, that's true. Uh, according to the senior council's uh, bylaws, anyway. Um, so... Uh, anyway, that, that tradition, which started in 2020 for the class of 20 who didn't really get a graduation, as you all recall, uh, they did get the senior cruise and uh, sort of an informal parade of sorts, but uh, with a lot, great deal of coordination uh, with uh, Chief Harris of our police department and her command and her officers um, and some, some level of coordination uh, with the city. Um, and that's continued and continued in 21, 22, and it'll continue again in, uh, this year in 23. And, and the folks who are organizing it this year are super excited about it. And I just wanted to let everyone know, uh, folks listening, uh, but also my colleagues on the council, it's June 4th, uh, at 7:45 PM. And the routes, uh, will be similar to the first year, uh, 2020 routes. One starting up in Juanita Village uh, and traveling p past Fire Station 21 at Forbes Creek. And another starting in uh, South Kirkland Park and Ride and traveling p p uh, past Fire Station 22. And then both converge on Lake Washington Boulevard, and that's where the real action is. So for any of our folks who are listening, uh, watching, or watching this later, uh, really it's along Lake Washington Boulevard where the excitement really is you get to s give a big send off to our class of 2023 and uh, for uh, members of our council uh, you know who are interested being at fire station 21 and 22 when they roll by around 7 45 8 o'clock 
Um, might be a lot of fun, and I know uh, lots of us have done it in the past. So, all right, I just want to let make sure everybody knew about that. Again, June 4th, uh, starting at 745. Great. Um, it's a good thing we canceled the scramble. Just saying. Councilmember <laughs> 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 Curtis. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, the legislative work group had the honor of attending um, housing bill signing, was it last week? Um, and thank you to the council for um, your strong support of the housing bills and a lot of progress was made this session. Um, I have GMPC tomorrow. Oh, Councilmember, I'm fading, guys. Councilmember Nixon, you missed all the fundraisers we've been going. It's May and it's the season of fundraisers. I, I've got at least three a week. Um, GMPC tomorrow, another challenging issue. Clean sweep this weekend. Um, looking forward to that. And on June 2nd, we'll be unveiling our Pride Crosswalk. Thank you. Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, most of my things have been checked off, so thank you. I'm glad to go forth. Um, I will keep mine short and sweet. Um, one, want to let folks know that this Saturday, the Kirkland National Little League is having a Fan Fest from 11 to 6, I believe. That's what's on my calendar. I'll be volunteering there, selling raffle tickets, probably overseeing the bouncy house and a few other <laughs> things that they need help with. And all of my kids will be involved in some way. I think my daughter's going to some sort, playing some sort of alumni softball game or something with some grown-ups. So it'll be a lot of fun. It's open to the community. So come on out and check it out if you're looking for something to do and support our kids and our community on Saturday. And then secondly, um, I just want to say happy birthday to my husband, John. It's his birthday tonight. And I'm hoping to get home and spend some time with him tonight before it strikes midnight and before I fall asleep. So <laughs> happy birthday, sweetheart. Love you. Thank you. Councilmember Pascal. I'll be quick then. Um, I, just a couple couple future things since all the past, re, past events were mentioned. The Regional Transit Committee meetings tomorrow. I guess I'm going to get a repeat of some of what was shared tonight with the Flex Service and... Um, they're also going to be talking about partnerships with cities, and they're using Kirkland as a kind of a model. Um, so that that's that's pretty cool to see. I could, I'll forward along the presentation to you all so you can see that. Uh, and then, I I was planning planning to attend the the Bellevue Chamber on Thursday. I don't know if others are, but the, Bob Ferguson will be there along with the CEO of the Washington Retail Association. And they're going to be talking about public safety, retail theft, organized crime impacting businesses in the community. So it sounded, it sounded interesting. Um, and I know something that I think our community would be interested in as well. So that's what's coming up. Excellent. Deputy Mayor Arnold. Uh, one past event to report, Councilmember Pascoe and I attended Cascade Bike Everywhere Breakfast. Uh, Kirkland was one of two cities that had a table there with um, board staff, with um, uh, council member staff and, and other people uh, attending. And that was uh, very interesting to hear um, from uh, Dong Ho Chang, who you might have remember, who is Seattle's transportation engineer, now works for WashDOT and all the good work that they are doing. One upcoming thing not mentioned, on Tuesday, May 30th, is the PSRC General Assembly. Um, Madam Mayor, are you able to attend that? I am going, I think. Okay, I will be going as well, but so that means we're, we're covered. And Councilmember Black. Very good. We'll see you there. Excellent. 
Okay, I just have a couple things to round this out. On the 4th of the month, I attended a housing roundtable with Susan Del Bene, uh, Claudia Balducci, and a bunch of housing folks, and folks, both housing providers as well as um, advocates. It was, a, it was a lively discussion, and boy, they just can't sing our praises highly enough in, in Kirkland for our commitment to affordable housing, so it was pretty cool. A Cascade uh, Water Alliance update. Uh, we have temporarily put Ray Hoffman on a, on a family leave. Uh, his wife's uh, cancer has been aggravated. She had a stroke recently, so Chuck Clark has agreed to step back in to his old role for up to three <clears throat> months, uh, and we just hope and pray that things get better for Ray and his wife. Um, then on the 10th, I attended a two-and-a-half-hour drive to Lake Taps to attend the Lake Taps community meeting where 100 people spent two-and-a-half hours, two-and-a-half more hours wanting Cascade to do more about the milfoil and the, and the weeds in the lake. So that was a lot of fun. Um, then last night, I was a co-host at America's, America's Competitiveness Exchange Reception with the mayors of Bellevue, Redmond, and Woodenville at uh, Chateau Saint-Michel. It was a very interesting event with about 60 to 70 representatives of all Latin American countries who are, are being touted and brought up by the governor was there, uh, Josh Brown was there, and these guys are on a five-day tour uh, across Seattle and the, and the east side. Um, about places where businesses could come and, and establish themselves in the United States. So that was an interesting thing. And then this morning, I spoke at Seattle's Metro Chamber meeting with regard to housing um, and how Kirkland is planning to implement 1110. That was a lot of fun um, because, of course, we've already implemented 1110. <laughs> so, so I think Randy Banneker is the one who invited me. I think what he was attempting to do is to show the greater Seattle area, what Kirkland's doing. They really did appreciate our perspective um, and the fact that, you know, that people are accepting of it and that it's, it, you know, it, it, it didn't blow everything all up at once, but uh, the fact of the matter is that it's working. So that was a really fun discussion this morning. And with that, I'll turn it over to the city manager. Okay. Uh, just uh, several quick things. Um, first, as I mentioned before, uh, we are going to be bringing to the council at the first meeting in June uh, ordinance change to create Juneteenth as an official holiday in the city where the city facilities will be closed, similar to other holidays. Um, that has been something that's a part of the police guild contract that you just passed earlier today, as well as the ASME contract. So I just want to make sure that you know that's coming. Um, I think all of you may know, uh, but those who don't, that the legislature did meet today in special session. They did pass uh, a bill overwhelmingly, uh, sort of a Blake fix bill. We do not have, it's a 50-page bill with a lot of complexity, so we do not have a presentation tonight, but we're happy to answer questions. Uh, Diana Hart is here if, if needed. But our recommendation is we come back in the June meetings to talk more about that, but the legislature has acted. So let me just pause on that before I move on. Larry fed the dogs tonight. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> um, and then uh, also uh, forecasting a June event, uh, we received 
request for two of our housing projects uh, that are part of our city work program, the Kirkland Heights project and the Polaris project, which is the project that's by Fred Meyer. Uh, the Kirkland Heights project needed an additional uh, $500,000, and at our last Arch Board meeting last week, we were actually able to find uh, CDBG money from King County uh, that we were able to allocate, so we have fixed their problem, and they were excited about that. But uh, Arch has tapped out, but the Polaris project is looking for $1.8 million in additional funding because of their escalating costs due to inflation um, and the financing costs with the rising mortgage rates. I've um, been working with the staff at Arch, and we think King County is going to be willing to commit $1 million of that, but they are requesting that the city explore whether we could help with the $800,000. Uh, so I'm still working with Arch to see if there's any other couch cushions we can turn over, but I'll be maybe bringing back to the council some options for discussion at the June council meeting to finish off that project. So just wanted to give you a heads up about that because they're trying to move to demolition and action, and um, it's a fully permitted project and ready to go. So again, just want to give you a heads up on that. Well, like we funded extra money for the salt husk project, I think yes. it only yeah, makes we, The city has put in allocations. And <clears throat> one pocket that I'm working with finance on that we haven't used a lot um, in the past is we do get fee and lieu dollars when developments happen, and we typically just move those dollars to ARCH as part of the trust fund. Those are in addition to our normal trust fund contributions. So uh, we're going to be looking there first. So I have some, also have some options for the council um, as soon as we can. And then finally, uh, Councilmember Nixon might want to join in on this as well, uh, but we have worked out a deal. Deputy uh, City Manager Beth Goldberg has worked out a deal with WashDOT to allow us to move forward on the permanent fence at the park and ride. So even though we won't own the property, they're going to let us go ahead and put that in. So a very nice fence that will have a very nice gate. <laughs> we'll be moving forward. We'll fund it, uh, but we'll be looking for, um, in the final deal, the transfer of the property and the payment we hope to be um, paid back by that. So as you start to see that, I just want to make sure council knew that that's underway. It may take a few weeks before that starts to happen, but it'll be happening soon. And we did have a chance to talk to the South Rose Hill Bridal Trails at some length about the whole issue of the park and ride and its history and the ballot measure and transfer stations and so forth. But Councilman Nixon was there, so I don't know if you wanted to add anything um, from that conversation. Just, uh, I guess the main thing is that... Um, you know, they feel a little left out, and they really appreciate the fact that Kurt and I were at their their meeting and were able to to go in depth on some of the things. But there's actually a lot of things going on with the potential aquatic center, the NERTS, the bridal trails uh, development, the, all those things, and um, uh, they they would like to be more engaged. So. Um, it, but it, but we want to do that for the whole city, right? But but I, they emphasized that, and they were very appreciative of the fact that we came. Uh, Kurt and I uh, attended their meeting online uh, last Tuesday. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah, a week ago now. And um, but I think we, I think we need to be to try hard to be more engaged with the neighborhoods where major city projects are going to be. And make sure that we, uh, for awareness, number one, but also to get feedback from them. Well, but that project is kind of dead in the water right now. The Bridal Trails one, right? I. Are you talking about the development itself? Yeah. 
Uh, I, I don't know. I haven't gotten an update on that yet. Yeah, I haven't heard. Um, My understanding is that... Uh, of our planning director just logged on. Oh, there he is. Oh. Hello, Adam. <laughs> yeah, what's up with that? Hey, good evening. It is moving forward, actually. It's going through the design review process. Oh. Um, I think we're waiting for another submittal back from the applicant, but um, it is actually moving forward. That's good to hear because my yeah. information was that the buyer had pulled out. No, it's not. That's not correct. I don't think. Okay, that's good. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anything else? And then there? finally, uh, since Councilmember Pascal mentioned the chamber event, we actually uh, Diana Hart, Jim has been working with the chamber, our chamber of commerce, on a similar event. It's not quite scheduled yet, but where we'd have the chief and police and the same retail organization talking about retail theft and actions that the. Um, local businesses can take in partnership with the city. So more details will be coming soon on that. We're hoping maybe sometime in June for that event. You're working with Sharice on that? Yes, we're working okay, with Sharice. And then any other calendar updates? Otherwise, that's my report. Um, yes, I actually just noticed I'm not going to be missing the next meeting. I will be here. I come back on the 5th, so. Oh. Yay. Okay. <laughs> all right, well, that's all I have, Madam Mayor. All right, with that, then, this meeting is adjourned.